Greetings chillers, this is Eli Hall, recording from a fortified position in Gustafsson Lake in 1995. I just wanted to send this to Jimmy quick because I realized that I hadn't said... just wanted to send a quick addendum to Jimmy to include in the episode because I realized I hadn't spoken on it much, but... um, You know, I just wanted to say... um, Part of the teachings that I've been, that I've gotten and continue to get is to always center humility. And uh, with that in mind, I just wanted to share. You know, I'm not a representative of anybody. You know, I'm not, uh, not for, not certainly not for Indigenous people as a whole at all. Hopefully, no one would think that anyway. But you know, not even for my my nations or my family. Not that I shared much about either of those on the episode in the interest of OPSEC, which feels really weird in and of itself. But, you know, all that is to say, don't uh, quote me, don't quote tweet me on Twitter to try to flex or something. You might look dumb. I probably have gotten a date wrong here or there or mispronounced something. So, you know, there's lots of, there's lots and lots of good literature and good podcasts currently being made by Indigenous people addressing a lot of the the issues that I talk about in the present, not necessarily in the past, but yeah, so shout out Wash Day podcast, shout out Band of Turtle Island, Bands of Turtle Island, shout out Red Nation. Those are all really good places to start. So if this is, you know, if, if these things are things that you're wanting to learn more about, I recommend turning to those. But thanks again to, to Jimmy for hosting my dumbass. Uh, I've got to go. I can see RCMP and Canadian Armed Forces planting mines around our position. All my relations. A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. All right. <laughs> now, in doing Program to Chill, I have talked quite a bit about the forces of greed, capital, the convergence of intelligence agencies, crime, and even dark spiritual beliefs that can combine to enact crimes against humanity. If there's one thing my show's about, of course, it's business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica, and how they are like force multipliers on each other. And it is my pleasure and my privilege, I guess, to discuss what may be, at least for the American continent, the earliest, darkest, and maybe worst conspiracy of all. We'll get to that in a second, but allow me to introduce Lai Hall. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. 
So for my listeners here, Lai Hall is an indigenous researcher, a singer, and self-described work shy red, living somewhere in KK Canada. <laughs> Hell yeah, baby. <laughs> I was like, work shy. I had to Google that and I was like, oh, good Lord, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Self-described. I, I got to lean on that. So do you prefer, let me ask, do you prefer Kika Canada or Kika Canada? Because I do feel like they have slightly different shades of nuance, right? I think I appreciate the KK Canada. That's a very, uh, that's a subtle move, but it's, you know, <laughs> it's legit. And I think it kind of, it plugs into something that we're going to touch on a bit. It's sort of like the international quality of these, of these issues, right? Because a lot of people don't like to talk about it, but in, um, in, uh, on the west coast of Canada, in a province called BC, there's a there's actually a section of land out by the university there, or the University of British Columbia, and that it's called the British Properties, hmm. and it's just like this very old. This is like a very old section of the city that is occupied by like some of the oldest settler families from, obviously England, but. That is also the where the Ku Klux Klan's chapter in BC had their headquarters. Oh, really? Yeah. It's so crazy because, like, I think there's like this perception, at least in the U.S., that the Klan is like a Southern thing, even though like the revivals were in like Illinois and Indiana, right? But like, I didn't even realize that there was the Klan in Canada, though I would not be surprised, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it's like. I think we were talking a little bit about this before we got on, on mic, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I was saying that like at the, at the border about like 50 to a hundred miles due North, you'll basically find exactly what you'll find in the States in terms of like, you know, cultural affect or yeah, culture affect and just sort of like the, because, you know, Canadians just love to mimic Americans more than anything. Mm -hmm. So you know, if it, if it if it exists in America along that sort of northern northernmost edge, so like Washington, Montana, uh, Illinois in the Midwest, Detroit, uh, I don't know what's on the border that far east past that, but like, <laughs> but you can you can pretty much assume that you're just going to be dealing with the same same sort of people, and that includes like the clan. And you know, once you go once you go north, then there's just like a bunch of really weird shit, <laughs> like some of the the best and worst qualities that you could possibly imagine in redneck people past that point a lot of natives <laughs> yeah now we were talking for a while and it's funny because the first thing we were talking about which maybe i don't even want to say yet because maybe we'll do an episode on it well i don't know maybe like the whole like chaos magic thing which is like super interesting because i've been reading chaos magic stuff lately and i'm just like oh so they're <laughs> diseased in a bunch of different ways up to <laughs> and including appropriating native culture <laughs> well yeah and that's the thing like I'm, i mean i'm happy to wet people's appetites a bit because i've got uh, yeah. i've got a lot of this in my i've been stewing in this for the past <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm not on twitter and i've just been stewing in this for a year <laughs> <laughs> a lot to say man <laughs> no it's funny because like sometimes people are like oh yeah twitter it's this huge time sink and it's a waste but 
the flip side is it's a little bit of a pressure valve so you don't just weird out all of your friends <laughs> and family all the time <laughs> yeah, so i don't have to tell my boss why i hate surrealists yeah <laughs> God damn it but i mean but yeah i mean that's yeah i don't know should we should we do a little uh teaser? I, I think that that'd be good because the, the thing is i don't think people are going to like just know like i feel like you know like if we say if you say like the general premise or whatever it's not like people are going to be like oh i know all about that so maybe maybe okay. we should give them a little taste i don't know but you know i'm new to the to the more uh let's call them spiritual aspects of like the critical paranoid mm. discourse so coming in and learning about things like like chaos magic specifically and like kenneth grant and like those sort of weird uh like white people magic or whatever the fuck you want to call it but like yeah so so one one aspect of uh of colonialism one of the ways that that sort of manifested in a really like horrendous way in canada is that for about 80 years there was an outright ban on participate like uh an outright ban on cultural practices be that like yeah, so things like things like powwows, uh, powwows, potlatches, which is like potlatches, like a really broad kind of trading jargon term for a, a form of like it's a it's a there's a spiritual aspect to it, but there is also like a, a component of governance in that a lot of again it's like very like specific to different nations that did that sort of practice but you'd basically have like a sponsor of a potlatch and they would have everybody come together uh like from neighbors near and far like people would like canoe down to where seattle is from alaska to attend potlatches to just to mm. be there and they would just give away like tons and tons of wealth and at the same time they would be like expressing like their oral history up to that point like these are the deeds that i did this year these are the people in my family that are getting names this is like this and that so it was sort of a way to Basically, the more people that attended your potlatch, the more affirmation your oral history would have, just in terms of having that many witnesses. But, um, but you know, for for almost three generations, it was illegal to practice those mm-hmm. in Canada. And, you know, people would be sent to prison. People would have their, like, food rations taken away. And most relevant to this, ceremony regal- ceremonial regalia, um religious items would be taken by the indian agent that was looking after that reserve and from there some some scrupulous indian agents would sell the artifacts to museums but the more unscrupulous indian agents would just sell them on the private market or in the black market mm-hmm. and you know there's this one I'm just going to pause really quickly to get this fucker's name once <laughs> <laughs> um can i just say i love like the energy of like i would say it's petty except it's not petty in this case like, <laughs> I, you know you you know my show like i am driven by these generally petty grievances to like <laughs> drag people from history through the mud and i'm all i'm here for it dude i want to ruin this man's family's name more than <laughs> else in my life. well that's the thing is that there's like i might have to come back and just drop this guy's name with like a robot voice or something <laughs> but, but there's so all right so 
Yeah, so unscrupulous Indian agents would wind up just stealing them outright for themselves and either keep them in their private collection or if they wanted to make some extra money, they would sell these artifacts on the black market to different art dealers and stuff. And one RCMP constable in particular was responsible for the theft of something like a hundred or more different masks and and shawls and uh and cedar capes and just you know just different religious items and stuff and his wife and himself eventually sold them to different surrealists that would be coming into the community from outside because the surrealists had this you know this like this obviously this like grand perception of like a noble savage right like these people were in touch with nature and like and so they would collect these objects and bring them back to like integrate into their art practice or directly draw inspiration from them or in the case of someone like George Bataille Hmm. develop an entire like deranged fucking religious system around like drinking people's blood or something I don't know but he was on such weird shit man (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with French people which we'll all (laughs) get into that later when we talk about our little problem but yeah, I mean, all this is to say that, like, you know, my my and my family was affected by this in different ways. Like, my uh, my my great grandpa went to residential school and escaped from some different orphanages in his youth, and you know, he he wasn't able to be in touch with that. And my my great grandma wasn't able to stay on a reserve because she was pregnant out of wedlock and had to marry a white person, which meant that her status was taken away. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, stories like that are really normal, but. So that, I mean, Cole's notes, that's why I wasn't able to grow up in with this stuff. But as I've kind of come up and learned kind of almost in parallel with kind of becoming more conscious as a, as a leftist or what have you, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's like to kind of learn about these different ceremonies and like these different families and what those, what those things could mean is, you know, it's horrifying in the sense that like, you know, just in like the abstract, like material sense that it's like a disgusting theft. But then in like the spiritual sense, it's just like, holy fuck, they're going, they're like doing some really bad shit to themselves and others. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so like, I can't remember, I can't recall exactly why we started talking about that. Like, I don't know if it was something in one of my episodes or I, I can't even remember, but like, it's interesting, right? Because like, when I was younger, I was like, oh, you know, kind of into art. And I was like, oh, the surrealists, they're really cool. And then as I got a little bit older, maybe arguably a little wiser, I was, you know, like, okay, like a lot of these surrealists are kind of like satanic, actually. (laughs) And then like, come to find out, like, sure, they actually are. And I'm not being like hyperbolic. And then like you pointed out, like the very real theft of like, things with spiritual weight and i'm just like oh no they actually (laughs) actually are oh my god well yeah and that's and that's what's so sus to me about chaos magic as a concept is because it's like you know from like even from like a chaos magic standpoint it's like you don't really know what it is you're like fucking around with you know what i mean you don't know like what you're calling with the stuff that you're using but then from I feel like I keep coming back to the materialism side of it, but just like, even in the abstract, it's like, even from like my perspective as someone that is sort of like, not necessarily like very deep into that, that practice, but just sort of as someone that 
knows a little bit and enough to kind of recognize it and know what not to do i kind of like see that happening i'm like holy shit man <laughs> like yeah this is yeah you know this is like yeah <laughs> like just irresponsibility of like playing with some of that stuff like totally uh yeah so that's the whole thing that maybe we'll maybe do an episode on i think that could be really really productive but possibly um (laughs) so the thing that we sort of uh settled on talking about and you know certainly there would be i think this would be good setup for you know future episodes but like you sort of hit on this idea (laughs) of i'm trying to think you phrased it a couple really good ways but it was like colonialism as a parapolitical project essentially and like I you know I know just enough history for me to be like yes no that is there's something there so you know there's a bunch of things here that we have written down so I think we can just get into it but like uh like for instance the terra nullius in general like could you maybe explain what that is and then (laughs) I really like how it's like an ontological attack almost, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that um, there's an author named Nick Estes that does. Um, I think he's he's a professor and an organizer, and he uh, he runs this podcast called The Red Nation, and has a, mm-hmm. has written a book called uh, Our History Is the Future. And in in the first chapter, he kind of is framing what he's about to speak about, and I think that. He said this line that I think would be a really good kind of way to to ground the conversation or kind of have as like a concept in the background when we're when we're thinking about these sort of things. But he said that like indigenous civilizations are post-apocalyptic societies. Mm. So and and so to kind of consider that and think about like like I feel like he would like shudder <laughs> this kind of like at this sort of like a uh, this sort of framing and conversation around it, but just sort of like thinking about that in the same while holding someone like Alex Jones talking about the new world order. Right. <laughs> so it's sort of like, and, um, and yeah, that, like, I think that's just been something that I've been kind of coming back to and sort of like using as a, almost as like a rubric. It's just like, okay, well, what would like Alex Jones say if he was like a Beothuk guy <laughs> in like New Brunswick in like 1500 or whatever that was. And like, you like, Hudson's Bay Company, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting, right? Because, like, I mean, the quote says it, obviously, but, like, indigenous civilizations are, like, they did go through an apocalypse fundamentally, right? Like, you can point to several events which were basically, like, just the destruction of their civilization. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, and the thing about like thinking about colonialism as a parapolitical project is that there's like the the material aspect of it where you know talking about terra nullius the Mm -hmm. the material aspect of it is that it's literally like private corporations seeking out resources to exploit collaborating with the state Mm -hmm. and the state collaborating with the the catholic church (laughs) yeah and like the it's like the Jesuits were like NGOs that were coming in and doing work alongside the corporations, right? Like things like it, like 
things weren't that different back then to how they are now is like what I like I'm starting to realize with like history right yeah no totally and that's the thing it's like you know talk about like an ontological operation where you have things something like terra nullius which is like literally a legal concept that was written down by the pope in these in these set of documents called the papal bulls where you had portuguese settlers arriving in africa and spanish settlers arriving in the caribbean kind of looking for legal justification for doing what they were doing which you know they knew fundamentally was theft and so they mm-hmm. kind of like deferred to the state who deferred to the the religious authority which basically put down this these yeah the papal bulls which i mean the the sort of like the cole's notes is basically that if you you arrive at a land that's populated by people who aren't catholic then you can claim it as yours your own um and i can't remember off the top of my head if that extended to yours in a private sense like this is your property now or if you were claiming it on behalf of the state but i imagine like i think it was like partially but like with some caveats or something yeah yeah because I mean, like all those expeditions were sponsored by the state or the corporation. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's crazy. Because like, I think I read somewhere a while back that like Columbus's expeditions were like, if you were to just look at them f- from like an accounting perspective, like they were like phenomenally profitable among all the other things that they were. Yeah. And it's like, these were like profit making ventures. Like th- this was not just like, Oh, you know, the way it's taught in textbooks where it's like exploration for its own sake and also the glory of God or something like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, um, you know, I, like I grew up in Canada, so I think that a lot of the stuff that I'm able to kind of draw on from my own from my own knowledge is very Canadian centric. But I think that, um, you know, subliminal jihad had all the history of the great american fortune episodes right oh yeah those are like probably my favorite of their episodes oof man yeah that's like prime shit but you know for so so to come back around to the canadian example like the the profit making ventures is the most it's it's the most central aspect of the entire canadian project right because the first Mm -hmm. Like like Canada, the the territory that now comp- like comprises what's known as Canada or whatever, in the in the early settlement, the first uh, like quote unquote treaties were made between like independent traders and like the indigenous people that they met, and just sort of in the spirit of being like, oh hey, didn't know you would be here. Do you mind if I take some stuff? <laughs> like, yeah. So it was very sort of like said very sort of like true to the the sort of governing principles of those nations but then as you had like the hudson's bay company come like the like about 70 percent of like the country was just known as rupert's land because that's just the name of the hudson's bay company boss that pulled up to to start to exploit the territory right so that's and that's like you know come and talk about an ontological operation like when you're just like a child in high school or elementary school or whatever it might be learning about, about Canada, like they'll have to kind of breach the topic of, or broach the topic of like, why, why was Canada Rupert's land? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if to kind of like talk about it in very abstract terms early on, it kind of like, 
that that kind of gets tossed out and gets replaced with like Trudeau Trudeau senior style like multiculturalism you know just sort of like brushes past um and you know and and in a sense that's kind of like to kind of say it like that isn't it doesn't feel as juicy as it ought to be for like program to chill (laughs) yeah yeah no I mean like it's interesting right because like the way that we're taught history in general like lord knows there's huge gaps with like indigenous stuff but like on top of that even just like the story of like the like the rise of corporations it's almost taught as if that occurred you know in like the 19th century or something when like the most powerful corporations were like several hundred years before that you know like there's like like you said like an ontological operation going on for like every part of history like it's like we don't understand that like these corporations were like essentially nation building on their own separate from obviously all of the massive like gaps in what they actually did too yeah exactly and you know just coming back even to to terranolius is like like a legal legal principle is just so it's wild I'm sorry, I'm just trying to find the actual reading because the or the actual like the text the text of it mm-hmm. because the... as you look yeah as you're looking that up I'll just say it. Uh, <laughs> you sent me a podcast and we'll have to plug it but uh <laughs> they had a great uh line that Canada is just three mining companies <laughs> crap how did they phrase it three mining uh, companies in an overcoat or something yeah, three mining companies in a trench coat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that was the the bottleman. They're like a, they're, I mean, it's a solid podcast overall. It's like a couple guys that are somewhat adjacent to like the Chapo scene and stuff like that. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, it might be, it might only be 40 miles from the border, but sometimes Canadians do get things right. And like, yeah, <laughs> some episodes are better than others, but I would say if you're curious about, you know how diseased the political culture of Canada is. Uh, I would def- definitely recommend kind of going through a few of those and seeing what kind of strikes your interest. Um, oh yeah, damn. Okay, so I, I had a professor that used to just leave all of the course material up on a page, and now it's gone. Damn, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes. Um, yeah, I mean, but Terranolius just as like a a legal concept just means like. The, like the land is empty and that's and it's not and it's not related obviously to like in a literal sense you know what i mean it's just sort of like the coming back to like what we were talking about in terms of the like these these explorers and these sort of i mean you can almost you can you can think about them as like venture capitalists right because they were pulling up to these these sort of like big land masses that were speculative interests <laughs> like pulling up and just doing whatever they could to ensure that they got what it is that they came for and that could be like you know where like in the caribbean where where like the belgian congo got their sort of standard operating procedure and standard practices right it's like exploiting these people who who they found there that you know and i i kept like trying to send you these these things but i kept 
calling the, it's like the validadod debates but for some reason i just kept sending you the debatadod debates <laughs> yeah i was like googling it i was like nothing's coming up <laughs> holy fuck <laughs> this is why i don't have twitter <laughs> but but in that case it was like a high official from the the catholic church having a debate with a missionary that was in the caribbean and the like the the central thing that they were debating is like whether or not these people that they found there were like human beings or in fact animals yeah, I remember hearing about this, and it was just, like, remarkable for how insane it is on the face of it. And then, like, on the flip side, how important it was for history. And then, like, in addition to that, it's almost like they just did what they were going to do anyway. The debate, ironically, didn't even end up mattering, unfortunately. <laughs> like, it's just crazy stuff. Yeah. Revelation of the method. <laughs> yeah. Which it, and I mean, so much of this, like you were saying, like so much of this is just like, if you want to see the revelation of the method for the UN or just like international law, quote unquote, as it does or does not exist now, like you just would just consult like the first 150 or so years of colonial powers in, in the Americas, right? Because you have like, yeah, just like you said, like people winging it, really. Like, people yeah. Kind of like kicking the ball up the chain until you get to someone that's deranged enough to say something like yeah terra nullius or the doctrine of discovery which is that other concept of like if there's no catholics here then it's yours yeah and that's and that's the thing and you know i i keep i feel like i sound very larushian hey we're all about embracing the larouche mindset without actually being one (laughs) hell yeah dude that's See, that, that's what I'm about, is that very vague solidarity between Indigenous people and the LaRouchians. <laughs> well, um, just the general premise of, like, Anglos are sick and diseased people who have spread their mind viruses all over the world. Like, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could say the same for the French. Mm-hmm. We're equal opportunity here. <laughs> <laughs> We're equal opportunity in ad- identifying the different mind viruses. Exactly.
the francophone anglo conflict in canada being sort of like the being like the identifiable feature of like canadian social life is like an, is pretty interesting for me to hear as well this is like the, again we were talking a bit beforehand and sort of like you know just sort of like when considering canada and like the sort of oppressed minorities that might or not exist inside that state it's just like yeah. oh the francophones <laughs> just a little bit too um <clears throat> vocal for the level of oppression that they probably face yeah and i mean and, and again that's just like that's the aspect of like the ontological operation you know what i mean it's like you know for for as good natured as the flq might have been they <laughs> i think that i think they need to have a bit of a struggle session they, they think they you know perhaps in 2022 when the FLQ experienced some sort of like weird revival, then maybe we can all sit down and have a struggle session with them because, <laughs> you know, the territory that they were fighting for as like French Canadian was actually like part of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, like American people are just sort of people that have been in like the school system in North America would know as like the Iroquois. Right. So, yeah. And that, and that's sort of like the, and that's sort of what is often missed by like a lot of, a lot of leftists in set in, in settler countries, right? Is that there's like, underneath like these, underneath these sort of, these layers of getting to the bottom of like what what if, why exactly is this place sick? <laughs> at, the, at the very bottom is like, is is the history, you know? And I think people definitely identify it clearly often is sort of like oh yeah we're like literally like stand like standing over mass graves every day so yeah no like i wanted to ask you about that actually because like you know it's like super prevalent in like horror films or something like the idea and like it's so abstracted and i don't think people really think out the implications but with something like say just the shining that's like the most obvious one where it's like i think in the novel or something that the hotel is, you know, among all the other spooky things, like it's on a Indian gravesite. And like, I think that like the way people tell that and the way it's in popular culture, it's not ever really thought out the implications of that. But like, and like the Stanley Kubrick's, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but like, you're right. Like <laughs> things that happened in like the, you know, several hundred years ago, absolutely lay the groundwork for why a thing is like literally haunted today, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's you know, it's it's not hyperbolic in that in that sense. In that you know, mm-hmm. the Amityville Horror House probably is like built on top of Indian burial ground, and so is that like so is that hotel and in The Shining and stuff. And it's you know, in that in that sense, it's sort of like yeah <laughs> you know it's like, like we'll, we'll yeah. grant you this. but then it's sort of like what 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 kind of you know and then and again it's just like kind of coming back to that ontological aspirate ontological operation of it right where it's like like the indian burial ground and that sort of pat passing acknowledgement of like the the foundation of the state being a genocidal project is is true and accurate but what's the horizon beyond that? You know what I mean? Because the, mm. the genocide wasn't successful and like, 
you know, Nick Estes says in our history is of the future, like these, these civilizations are post-apocalyptic societies, but in saying that, you know, you're, you're also acknowledging that the societies continue to exist and like these cultural practices are still very much a part of people's lives. And yeah, yeah. It's interesting, right? Cause like a while back, I'm trying to remember the details. I don't know. You uh, have you like, there's a fiction author. I think his name is Sherman Alexi. Oh yeah. I think. Yep. <laughs> What's that? My man got me too. Oh, did he? Oh no. Yeah, that's <laughs> Maybe Maybe I shouldn't say it. Well, I uh, say it. Put it down. <laughs> well, he he, uh, he did a short story that envisioned a apocalypse of like just general Western culture, and like he, you know, he in the story, like different tribes weather the storm better, I guess you could say, than like you know white people. Oh, uh, okay. And it was it was an interesting exploration of that concept right they like you they've already been through an apocalypse like they ride through another one and it, like i'm like i'm just thinking about that it was like a pretty good short story i'm yeah, sad yeah. to hear that he did some shit i don't know yeah, me too <laughs> well that's that's the thing it's just like the the ontological operation doesn't just stop at settlers you know what i mean because there's mm-hmm. you know there's like band councils and stuff and like so band council and tribal council is like a instituted form of government that was like that was you know um imposed on those nations and some people got very rich from that and i think that might be you know it happens up here in canada too like it's like it's just like a meme on like indigenous and like indigenous instagram and facebook and shit but it's just like people are just like always clowning on family members and people in community that are band counselors because it's just like yeah you always skim <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? like, if you have like it's like a, it's a thing like if you show up in like a new shirt or with a new piece of jewelry or something someone will be like oh fuck buddy because <laughs> like, <laughs> recently not just for this episode but i was like i've always been meaning to read custer died for your sins right mm. and like he, I think he mentions uh, Vine Deloria, right? He mentions like how one way, like that, like indigenous people like deal with like just assholes in their communities to like make fun of them. Oh hell yeah, dude! <laughs> and like that sounds very healthy and good. <laughs> I mean, fuck. Even if they like you, these living shit, it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean for real though that's just like a like people will tell you like if the way that like if you're from if you're like an outsider or whatever the way you can tell people from the community like you is that they'll tease you mm-hmm. <laughs> like, which can cool. be incredibly confusing for someone that didn't grow up in the culture like me <laughs> <laughs> well i mean not that it's obviously the same but like <laughs> i've spent a lot of time with latinos and good lord do they do that too <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> that's dope <laughs> well i mean I like, like I said, I didn't grow up with it, but I like, you know, I've been trying to reconnect in a, like a respectful kind of way. And like, I remember one of the fucking funniest things a friend of mine told me is that I was like native enough to take a joke, but not too white to like give it back. So that was like, <laughs> so thanks, <That's> yeah. funny. <laughs> um, let me, let me ask you this. Okay. So, yeah, you know, obviously I have a historical perspective that's mostly you know if i know anything about native stuff it's usually like 
in the United States. So like, but like I do, you know, I have read a lot of history. So like maybe I know just you know, somewhat more than like the average, you know, American. Yeah, yeah. So like my, I feel like there's this perception that like Canada, and I, I, I say perception, right? There's this perception that Canada dealt with native populations in a fairer way because that was always what I had heard and I know now that is that is definitely not the case but like it is different right because the whole thing played out differently because of like the crown and the way that the British Empire chose to deal with the tribes was quite different from like the United States and like it doesn't really seem like it was better no but like and like I was like reading Custer Died for Your Sins, right? And I was like reading and I was like, and the podcasts you sent me, and I was like, I know it's a reductive way to say it, but I was trying to be like, so was it better or worse? And like <laughs> it doesn't really seem like it was better or worse. It seems like it was just a different approach. What do you what are your thoughts on that? I know that's a huge question. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a really astute way to frame it because the you know, like the the United States, you know, the it's funny because I feel like I keep coming back to this this joke that, you know, like until you get like a hundred miles past the border, like mm-hmm. Canadians are basically Americans, right? But yeah, culturally speaking, but at the same time, like they all they god damn it, I'm not that um <laughs> 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 uh, like the like Canadians love to make just and like at every opportunity they love to distinguish themselves from from americans because yeah of you know like the ideology of america is maybe more brash or maybe less um less couth or maybe more towards saying like the loud part or the quiet part loud rather <laughs> um mm-hmm. so things like manifest destiny and the indian wars are sort of like the the cultural markers of that relationship but but in canada I think, you know, it, it's it's interesting because you, I personally, I notice it quite a bit, but there just isn't that many Indigenous people actively kind of participating in the debates and discourse around parapolitical events and history and that sort of mm-hmm. way to sort of think about history, right? But, you know, I think that an aspect of that might be that it's just not really news you know what i mean it's just sort of like yeah like yeah. we know because <laughs> because then it, and it comes down to exactly that that issue right where growing up in a country like canada that has this this sort of um this mask or this this public facing persona of being like a very benevolent if not just simply benign country or sort of force for decency in the world has a, a history with the indigenous people that is like horrific you know what i mean so you know just for just for example like i I know and you know this is sort of where my own lack of knowledge comes in as well because i don't i'm not the most knowledgeable about indigenous history of the states but i understand that there was boarding schools there too hey yeah yeah so there is like a similar practice and i think you could probably find that you know in any sort of like colonial colonial endeavor in the history that way but you know, here we have 
like in Canada, the residential school system was like a public private partnership between not, not just the Catholic church. Okay. <laughs> but, but just like the Anglicans had a number of churches as well. And some other, I know like the Anglicans and the Catholics had the most, but there were other denominations as well. Which it's just like, that's, that's the same thing. Let's be real. <laughs> Dead ass. <laughs> but the, but these were just like schools that were, were operated mm-hmm. by sort of like partially funded by the state, but operated by these churches that, you know, it's, it's a quote that gets bandied about quite a bit up here to the point where it, it feels almost trite to, to say it again. But like the, the idea was to like, uh, uh, what the fuck, like get the Indian out of the child or some dumb mm. bullshit like that. <laughs> that was like, and that, and that was the project, right? Like these schools were like an assimilative aspect of like this genocidal project where on paper they would learn to speak English, they would learn vocational skills, etc. And that's certainly an aspect of that was true in that they were like labor camps, you know what I mean? Like they, they quote unquote, were learning vocational skills, but they were literally just working farms adjacent to the school under the auspices of being trained, sort of like doing menial labor that way. And then they weren't so much learning English as like, you know, just getting like, and, you know, I, I don't really want to get, because then you know one thing I respect about program to chill is like the, you know, trying to avoid the gory details about these things because there's plenty of places mm-hmm. to learn them, and I I feel like I might not be the best person to, to express them, but you know just truly like, disgusting treatment, physical sexual abuse, just like all like all these things that, you know that like literally just towards assimilation. You know what I mean? So you have like from the early like 19th century up to 1996 these schools were being operated until the last one closed and even that's sort of an open question because there's on paper you know it was like it was the last residential school but there even today are still these like bizarre public private partnerships like operating hybrid sort of things yeah yeah exactly just like operating near reserves where you know, you might not have, because they're residential schools, like kids would live there all year round. And like, if their behavior was good, they might be able to go see their family if they could afford to. Mm. But, but, you know, yeah. So, and that's sort of like the foundation of like up to, because, you know, like I have, I have friends that are my age that went to residential school, you know what I mean? That's and crazy. So, yeah. So you, you have like, and like I said, like my great grandpa survived it. And that's sort of, you'll have like entire families that like up to the great, great grandparents sort of survivors of those institutions. Right. And that's really sort of like, that's, I think that's what people kind of need to understand is that like the basis of that relationship and to kind of look at the, I guess the more like parapolitical side of it or when you're considering that aspect of it, you know, that's where it, that's where I have like a few sort of thoughts and critiques around like certain aspects of like parapolitical discourse, like, you know, this kind of monarch style Mm, understanding like what trauma does to somebody, because then it's just like, well, you know, I don't think that we have like three generations of sleeper cells. (laughs) 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 They had like a fucked up childhood, you know, but, but it's, it's yeah, no, I, I like that. We should probably flesh that out. Cause like, I do think that, like, there's some really unhelpful discourse around a lot of that, like, monarch stuff that is unhelpful to the point of, like, 
probably being a shit goat, honestly. Yeah. Oh, oh, there's my cat. That's sorry. That was just my cat just like emerged from the attic in a really spooky <laughs> way. <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, maybe we can put that on the back burner because, like, mm. so yeah. So I think that like residential schools is sort of something that is key to understanding like how Canada related to Indigenous people. But beyond that as well, there's like the reserve system here. Um, and, you know, and this is where sort of like discourse around like stolen land comes in too, right? Like, I, I think that's just something that a lot of people hear out of context are just sort of like, well, yeah, but like, what does that mean for me? And like, what does that mean for the state in sort of practical terms? Yeah. Yeah. Then, yeah. This is sort of the, and this is sort of like the, the rabbit hole section of the show, I guess, where it's like, <laughs> it's sort of like the difficult thing to talk about in this, in a context where we're talking about reframing colonialism as parapolitical history. And I'm like, I don't know if it's just because it's something that I'm a bit more familiar with and have like an education behind me, or if it's like, just not really something to kind of be in that, in that rain, you know what I mean? It's just like a little bit difficult to kind of talk about it and make sure that it stays in this in this context that'll kind of grab people and kind of make them think about like oh shit yeah well I mean I think I like the way that you sort of flip it on its head because it's like okay it's not necessarily that like you know colonialism was parapolitics it's more like real history just simply has parapolitical elements but like you know real history like is simply not taught i guess yeah and i mean and and you know to that it kind of i think that dovetails with just what people that are interested in these topics and passionate about them kind of know about like you know if you get called a conspiracy theorist and in any sort of like if you're described as that then that kind of casts the dispersion of that kind of casts a pall for the average average person about what it is you're trying to articulate right Mm. Yeah, and I think the same, and it's exactly like you said, right? Like, quote unquote, like real history contains like parapolitical elements, but you know, parapolitic, like the history of parapolitics is real history. You know what I mean? Like the, excuse me, Jesus, like the, like the heroin trade in Laos and Cambodia, and even 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 that had like implications for indigenous people in those countries, right? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because like. <laughs> Man, I feel like I'm doing more thinking on this episode. Most episodes, I, like, either, you know, script things out or, like, I mostly know what I'm going to say. And with this, I'm, like, literally, like, intaking new information and then I'm, like, trying to process it. Like, this is... But, like, it's good. Like, I'm enjoying it, but, like... Oh, shit. (laughs) Well, that's good. Yeah, and I mean... And I'm enjoying it, too, as well. Like, it's, like... And it's good for me to kind of... To be to be in this position of like sharing it right and trying to make it trying to share it in a way that isn't alienating for other people or kind of like draws people into the history because I think that's you know like we we've been kind of making jokes here and there about like annoying leftists you know what I mean it's sort of like (laughs) like how to like how to have these conversations without falling into that sort of into a discourse that sounds like that but you know there there is like an element I think that are like somewhat dismissive of of things like this offhand because of things people like that and also you know just like the I think that there's definitely like a current of sort of like 
irony poisoned kind of offhand dismissal of things like land back for instance you know and i think yeah. we talked about this a little bit and like i don't want to you know i don't want to completely derail this sort of the thread that we're on but just the you know the willingness of like a a settler anti-imperialist in north america to kind of see like land back and be like oh what the fuck <laughs> you know like yeah oh what i'm going to go to a re-education camp <laughs> like, yeah you know it's just, it's just like well no man like you could like engage with this in good faith yeah <laughs> it is like it is a betrayal of like just like a sort of like refusal to engage with the idea seriously like first of all like most people you know the average person who's saying that doesn't probably own land in the first place so it's like (laughs) how different is your life actually going to be on the one hand and like separately it's like you know we were talking off mic or you know in dms or whatever and like you know I asked the question like in general I was like okay like I don't necessarily like I don't pretend to understand all of the implications of land back and of course that would be a huge undertaking etc etc and I asked you in general like because I think that with land back that's an appropriately high aiming like goal like you know, like too often leftists in general are like making slogans for things that will get, you know, bargained down even further than the thing you asked for. Right. Yeah. And so like, that's an appropriately high goal to aim for in the first place, just on a rhetorical basis, but like separate from that, obviously it's like a more important than that. But like, I asked you like, okay, what about respecting the treaties that already exist at least in the u.s context that would make sense maybe maybe that wouldn't necessarily fit for canada as well you made a few good points and uh, you know respecting the treaties would basically be land back half the time and then separately there aren't treaties for a bunch of tribes oh yeah 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 there we go and that i mean that might actually be a good way to dovetail into uh nato nazis creating the UN to ontologically operate on indigenous people. <laughs> God damn it. Um, yeah, no, I think that's great. That sounds good. But yeah, no, like you, like you're totally right. And like, you know, like you said, like it's that, that outright dismissal just kind of betrays like a certain entitlement, right. That I think that, you know, upon reflection, like any anti-imperialist would kind of like acknowledge and they might not say it out loud, but it's, it's a little bit, it would just kind of cringe a little bit right but mm-hmm. you know at the same time though it's just like the same it's like we were saying earlier like that like these these sort of like pedantic leftists that you know just kind of like assume that these like my impression is that they they have this kind of assumption that these these topics should be or like these concepts should just be easy for anybody to kind of pick up and look at and say yep this is here i go like <laughs> mm. but but, you know, like in, in the same sense as like capitalist realism, right? Like it's a really hard thing to wrap your mind around because, you know, there's not a lot, not everybody has even met like an indigenous person, you know what I mean? So it's, I think there's that sort of like cognitive dissonance for some people to kind of like suddenly see this, this concept come up, but not be able to tie it to something or, yeah. but, you know, I think that one way to start to think about land back is to kind of consider like what, 
your life might be like as a worker or as like a non-property owner that, you know, like what would it mean for like your local nation to suddenly like have this land back, even just by like the, the standards of the treaties that they signed originally. Right. Like for instance, um, just trying to, well, I know um, what, what nation was it? I think it was in Oklahoma recently. Okay. There we go. Yeah. So, and you know, so yeah, like in like that two years ago. So thinking about like, like considering land back or starting to think about land back from the perspective of, you know, just honoring like the original treaties that were signed in the United States. Right. Like kind of turning the clock back on like, okay, what if, what if these people weren't absolute pieces of shit? <laughs> like, maybe, I, maybe I should make the case, like, because I think a lot of my listeners, like, maybe don't realize that, like, the United States has broken almost, like, literally every treaty they've ever signed with, like, a given <laughs> Indigenous tribe, right? And it's yeah. just, like, I think that, like, the average worker, the average person, you know, so, you know the average white person or what have you, like, could very easily be swayed to simply respect the treaties that were signed. So like, that was like, you know, my question, right? Because I think every, like, I don't think the average person would be like, no, I think we should completely like, go back on the thing, the, the like the legal document that was signed to, with a sovereign nation, right? Yeah, for real. And, and you know, and to illustrate that, like, like two years ago, the Supreme Court in the United States ruled that like half of Oklahoma was actually native land, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. So like, like fuck, God knows. Like I understand that that doesn't actually mean anything materially, but like, <laughs> but like, yeah, you know. But just sort of like think like, oh, okay, now this house that I rent the basement of actually belongs to like the Shawnee Nation or something, and you're just like, cool. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully I don't have to pay as much rent now, <laughs> but like, but yeah. And that, and that's the thing, right. Is, uh, you know, there's, there's that sort of like objective thing, but then the other thing to consider as well is like for a lot of nations in North America, there's just no treaty. Mm-hmm. So consider like, again, kind of coming back to the example of British Columbia and Canada, like, um, across Canada there's they're called the numbered treaties and it's sort of like the order in which they were signed between the nations and the the crown or whatever so there's like treaties one through ten it is funny because I do have one follower that I was just or mutual I guess on Twitter that I was talking to about this episode who is Native American and they were they were like what what tribe is this person from I hope they're not going to tell you a bunch of bullshit <laughs> oh, damn it <laughs> no <laughs> no i was like no nah, i don't think so <laughs> no <laughs> you can don't cut this i'm doing my best please don't <laughs> <laughs> okay there's there's 10 treaties mm-hmm. damn hell yeah i'm gonna gonna have a fucking nice soda for that one later <laughs> um but yeah i mean there's so there's 10 treaties in Canada and the only one that kind of encroaches on British Columbia is treaty eight. But even that just is maybe like maybe an eighth of the land in the province kind of falls into that in the far North where Cree people have 
had their traditional territory and right but among like a like Waukesha language group people and Salish people there's no there's never been any formal treaties but mm-hmm. nonetheless there's still like Indian reserves and Indian bands and Indian band governance that that happens in that space and it's sort of like there's like that sort of incongruence and that cognitive dissonance there but it it is as stupid as it sounds like, like there's um because you know speak from a historical perspective the because settlers arrived in north america and didn't suddenly just like occupy all of north america right like it was a very actually like to kind of look at it on a map like in the scope of like all of human history it's very short but it was still like over the course of maybe like 100 or 200 years before they actually arrived in that that far west at mm-hmm. that far northwest rather but um so but with that being said like the diseases that came were able to get there before the settlers were so because of things like the so so in bc there's this thing called the grease trail um there's a there's a i think that i think the english name is candlefish but they, we call them ooligan but um there's this like coveted 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 product that you make with ooligan by like catching all these fish and fermenting them for i don't i'm not exactly sure how long but you ferment the fish and then you basically like boil them at a very precise temperature to render out the fat and it makes a super healthy uh i think it's really delicious but it's I'd describe the flavor maybe like dull fish sauce. <laughs> Interesting. That's almost like I know that like um like ancient Romans like had sort of like this interesting yeah. fish paste thing too. And like I like I've had recreations of it. So like it's probably not like way far off. That's yeah, that sounds tasty. Yeah, but the yeah, but the there's this trade route called the Grease Trail that ran from like the northernmost tip of Alaska down through the entirety of British Columbia, past Oregon, and there's like some evidence that it went as far down as into Mexico, right? So, and all that was just people carrying that Ulican grease from the nations that produced it that were sort of like like Nishka produced it, Haida produced it, um, produced. Uh, <laughs> I'd have produced it. Kokwakiwak uh, people did. So there, there's like a few nations that lived close to the supply that would produce it. And then they would just like send trading parties far as fuck away. But in the, in that process, you know, some, there's been some theorizing that through that is how diseases like smallpox might've reached those communities first. Right. And mm. so, so even before settlers arrived, a lot of nations were completely devastated. Like, um, you know, I'm trying to keep my OPSEC relatively high, but like a, <laughs> like, like a, like for the nation that my family comes from lost percent of the population before, like before white people showed up. Right. So. Yeah. that That's like a, this whole interesting thing that I think, like, I think it also was the case in large parts of the U S where it was like, this interesting thing where it's like not only were like settlers you know dealing with a stacked deck but like on the flip side there had already been like this like quasi-apocalypse even before they show up right totally um maybe uh 
maybe don't cut it, but maybe put a bleep over the percentage of the population that passed away in my yeah. because I think that's a somewhat specific number. <laughs> okay, I will. Thank you. Um, but yeah, all, all that is to say that you know, like the the kind of like political power and the the ability to to sort of enforce the their protocol and their their law was was really hindered just strictly by by a loss of numbers right like there wasn't as many people to compromise an army to kind of push back but mm -hmm. but because of that there's just like fucking lazy administrators like fucking asshole british people just pulled up and <laughs> just were you know so i think we touched on this before like this like even going back to things like terra Nullius and these and the doctrine of discovery and these very like abstract like no accountable sort of like legal fictions that kind of compromise the ontological operation, right? It's like this guy just, you know, walked into these comp like politically compromised places and just decided to like set up a reserve system without signing a treaty, which in the Canadian context meant a lot because they were still answerable to this, to the crown or whatever. And there's, yeah, there's like stratification of law that way where it's like the crown had an agreement with indigenous people, not the Canadian government. But and yet, mm. and yet this, you know, urbanization happened like all, you know, in the same way that it happened all over. But because of this, like, dumbass drunk on gin, like, just fucking <laughs> gin soaked fucking red coat or what, what? What's a bad word for English people? Uh, well, lobster when it's like when they're actually in the red coats. Uh, I don't think he was. <laughs> Yeah, what are the gin British gin soaked pedo? <laughs> Nonces, maybe. <laughs> gin soaked nonce. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, and it, it, James Douglas, the gin soaked nonce. Maybe, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, just decided to establish these sort of treaties piecemeal, which is how the reserve system started in BC, right? And then from there, it was just, after that, it was just like all out war, you know. Let me let me ask you this. Yeah. So I know this is like like with all pretty much everything we're talking about. I know it's complicated, but like, would you say that like having a treaty was better than having no treaty in a general sense, or did it seem to matter? You know, does that make does that question yeah. make sense? No, absolutely, and I think that's sort of the. I think for a lot of like indigenous people working in the field of law and international law, like that's a really relevant question. And I think that uh, a lot of people would say no. <laughs> uh, mm, like, yeah. Like the result was all was the same, but you know, and the, and this is sort of coming into and new world order territory that we're talking about because there's, you know, as much as the ontological operation has affected the settler community, it's also, it's also creeping into some indigenous circles as well, where there's this real, especially like in the nineties and the early two thousands, because this, uh, this thing called UNDRIP, which is like the United Nations declarations of declaration of rights for indigenous people was released mm. after like a, a long, like a long time of like different indigenous nations from like, like globally speaking, like nations from the Philippines, from Indonesia, from, United States and Canada and all over kind of came together to make this document that, you know, it's fine. Like in the same sense that like human rights being like negative rights is fine. You know what I mean? It's like, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. These people should absolutely on, on paper. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but even on paper, it's just like, yeah, these are like the measures that need to be here for for them to survive. It's like, what, dude? <laughs> Like, sure, I could probably get by with like a glass of water and like 500 calories a day if I had to, but I'd rather not. <laughs> and it, and that, and you know that on its face is sort of annoying, but then it's also this like this thing that's like, which is this thing that like you know it affects all discourse, I suppose, where it's just like it's just this. It's more of like a theoretical document than anything else, right? But people still have this huge investment in in legal doctrine where you know you can come and appeal to the united nations all you want but i think you and i both know like what what the united nations exists to do and <laughs> like the in terms of like actual global relations yeah like legal niceties are one thing but like the actual functioning of power it's like doesn't mean a whole lot if you don't have power as literally the people most aware of that fact probably are indigenous people right yeah and it's indigenous people that like live in the sticks on like reserves that are not urban and you know Mm -hmm. you know every reserve in canada has been under a boil water advisory for like nigh on 70 years like even like even in the wait oh fuck we need to bleep that (laughs) oh yeah okay like, like like even reserves that even reserves that are urban like that even reserves that are close to major cities just like don't have adequate infrastructure where people could drink water out of a tap Mm -hmm. which is just like like it's mind-boggling like you could walk across the street into like an like a suburban neighborhood and drink water safely but in the reserve across the street like it's like you might get like E. coli or some crazy fucking yeah it's like all the things that on paper were supposed to be like reasons why colonialism was good was like theoretically at least there was supposed to be like potable water but it's like no (laughs) they don't even have that like god damn it so what's the freaking point right oh yeah
again just trying to look towards more like you know maybe parapolitic parapolitical type of type of reads of the situation and that are sort of maybe maybe like deeper political thinking about it where you know a lot of a lot of nations were relocated to territory far away from their traditional hunting grounds strategically right or like traditional settlements where yeah you know you had people that were like in the same sense that like peasants are sort of self-sustaining right the people were were able to support themselves throughout the year by like not having to comply with like a, with capitalism or people were able to stick to sort of more traditional ways of of valuing certain aspects of their life where it's like we might not have like electricity or this or that but we've lived but we still live next to these like cultivated oyster beds that we've been running for like centuries but when there was but you know that those are things that like land speculators saw that geographers saw those are things that were like identified by people that were like surveying the united states and canadian border and that that data was compiled by indian agents and people were kind of shuffled around as such so that they would be moved to places that were more arid or places that were just sort of like harder to cultivate more traditional foods like if someone like lived on the coast and were like if a nation had an understanding of how to cultivate clams or oysters and stuff like that as a food source they would be moved like inland hmm. that's an interesting like po- like angle of like population control and like oh really obviously incredibly bleak right yeah but i mean but i think that when you kind of consider like those strategic aspects of the reserve system, it really paints like a much darker and like, you know, parapolitical picture of that, that operation that was going on, you know? So when you have that population control, you kind of think about like, okay, so why were they moved to this spot more inland? And if you look at older maps of those territories, you'll realize that a lot of these reserves kind of popped up on along like boom and bust economy and like seasonal economy places. So you had, for instance, like um, there's a nation called the Kwakwakwak, and in, like them in particular had uh, most of their village sites and their settlements followed the coast for the reasons that I kind of explained before, where it was like they over the centuries they'd learned how to cultivate oyster farms. They have even today still like people have managed to to bring back things like cultivating like wild potatoes and rice root and stuff but they were moved inland towards timber like mills and like timber camps and stuff 
Mm. So you have like generations of people that were just don't know how to fish, right? Like they just did, they just did tree falling. Let me ask you, cause I'm, I, I can guess the answer, but <laughs> do you think that a lot of these populations were moved around also simply to like provide labor? Oh yes. <laughs> okay. See, oh yeah. Then we're getting into, what is it? Uh, the, I forget the author, uh, the subliminal jihad, um, Gustavus. Gustavus Myers, baby. History of the Great Fortune. Hell yeah. Like, that's so bleak, but like, that is pretty much what I would expect from a three mining companies in a trench coat, right? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's, and that's even the thing with the fur trade, right? Like the, the Hudson's Bay Company came here to exploit that as a resource and just for generations, like indigenous people, that were near Hudson's Bay Company forts were able to make a living not by by semi-traditional means by operating like trap lines and stuff but you know a lot of ancestral knowledge wound up getting neglected that you know we can't even necessarily conceive of today because the reliance became on like beaver pelts and stuff like that because that was the highest profit Mm. so that's yeah just sort of like this routing and sort of manipulation of like those traditional economies was like and it's it's interesting to think about with even like the like the discipline of anthropology today Mm. because that's you know a lot of anthropologists were the people that were doing the research and studies about where the people would be harvesting and when as the reserve system was being implemented and people were kind of being shuffled around yeah no it is interesting to think about (laughs) almost like anthropology as like a dark art in the way that it was applied right because it's like not only is it like providing labor for say, okay, you move these people over here to provide labor for like a timber mill, but also to cut down on their ability to sustain themselves, um, you know, without having to be like a reserve labor force. Right. Yeah. And then that happened a lot in the prairies too. Like, um, like in treaty one, two, yeah, basically just all of the number treaty territories would be like moved to these reserve, like, like obviously like nations in Canada were affected by the near extinction of the Buffalo. Right. Yeah. So you had these populations that were, you know, an aspect. Which (laughs) that of course was like not an accident. Right. I don't think anyone thought like, let's kill all the Buffalo because there will be no repercussions to the native Americans. <laughs> like, I think obviously that was the point, right? Totally. And it, and it extended to Canada too. And if you want to know something so super fucking bleak, like the nations that were affected by um, the nations were affected, that were affected by that, like literally got starved out. Like the, and you know, this is all mm-hmm. stuff that was known, but not long after the worst, like things kind of settled in the sense that they were like, kind of you know they lived on reserves in canada you couldn't leave your reserve without a pass from your indian agent like you would have to like apply for one if you even wanted to go and sell like because they would set up like they're coming for you lyle oh shit (laughs) oh (laughs) Um, i'm about to tell the real truth behind the beat industry in canada (laughs) 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 i wish i was kidding (laughs) but like but um but no, so the, so these nations that were affected once the once that sort of stabilized a bit and 
sort of had these restrictive practices put in place, they were basically just funneled into seasonal labor of beet farming. Interesting. Can I ask why beets? Just because they grow in the prairies. Because <laughs> these, these farmers are fucking deranged. <laughs> okay. Because I was, I was going to... I was going to ask because I happen to know, and maybe this relates, maybe it doesn't, but in Utah, which... Lord knows there's a there's a legacy there with the <laughs> you know Mormon church and the indigenous population but like and I'm not trying to like avoid talking about that but like Utah in particular but I also want to say just the it wasn't just Mormons like talking about or they had an issue where they wanted sugar right mm-hmm. and so the only sources of sugar really are sugarcane which relies on the sugar you know essentially in the 19th century that was just outright slavery yeah and maple syrup of course was the other one but you can't they couldn't really like travel with maple syrup like there were issues with it and then beets was another way that you could technically make sugar it was inefficient and kind of bad but they were trying to do it. So Utah in particular was trying to like develop a beet into sugar like program. Yeah. And I wonder if the, I wonder if like they were trying to do that up there too. That's my question. Totally. And um, no, maybe cut this, but I, I was actually just, just kind of quickly looked up the, like that, that program or whatever to, just double check yeah. to make sure I was getting everything right. And it's actually fucking a lot worse than the one that I, <laughs> that Oh no. I, I read about this like a while ago, kind of maybe two or three years after the TRC came out, but in 2017, the CBC did this article with a former worker from there. And, and real quick, I'm going to say for the listeners, I, I think we might've said already, but that's the truth and reconciliation commission, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The truth and reconciliation commission that was completely, released in 2011 that was basically just addressing the impact and the the impact and sort of like the breadth of effects that residential schools had had on indigenous people in Canada mm-hmm. um okay so oh man we're getting into some deep shit with even I mean so this beat worker shit I just okay I just looked yeah. up a I just double checked to make sure I had all my facts straight with this and it's darker than I remembered but Oh, so so like you were saying with utah because like you said like sugar is a is a profitable harvest it's a good solid enterprise for people to get into and so and so that's why people had their beet farms and so following this sort of relocation project of the reserve system in canada there came about this this i mean you could i guess you could generously call it an agricultural practice but like <laughs> There was, mm-hmm. there was a labor scheme that was rolled out in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, sort of like the big prairie provinces here, um, where farmers come picking time or come time to harvest would just go to these, they would go to reserves, they would go to um, Métis communities, and that's a very Canada-specific thing that is very easily twisted. So I might do a very quick digression to explain that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Métis people are not 
not necessarily a nation in and of itself in Canada, but it's like a, a cultural group that has a close relationship with, with First Nations and Indigenous, like they're an Indigenous group in Canada. But basically it's, uh, broadly speaking, it's different families and colonies and communities that came up in the very early fur trade between like Indigenous women marrying fur traders from from Oh, from gotcha. Yeah. And I think there's a few parallel, smaller parallels in the United States. Yeah. yeah and I, I think there are even like Métis, Métis communities in the United States. Cause that's, that's one thing that's kind of annoying in Canada. When people, when you say that you're Métis, people just assume that you're mixed, <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. but like when you like Métis has like a very specific kind of distinct cultural just aspect, like a it. historical thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, okay. there's like a couple armed rebellions by Métis people. And like, there's, like hmm. because they weren't seen as uh, Indians as such, they weren't given reserves. So basically, that what that means in practice is that a lot of Métis colonies and communities, even to today, are just on crown land. So they're hmm. basically they're just squatters. So the the ones that are sort of lucky, kind of established, sort of like a an understanding, so to speak, with communities near national parks. But for the most part, they were in road allotments, which would be like like uh i don't know maybe like a 15 15 or 30 meter distance between like a highway and crown land where they would just set up like a shanty town oh jeez but um but i mean all that is to say like the these farmers would go to reserves in these shanty towns to to conscript to could basically conscript people to come and work on their farms for however little they we're inclined to pay them. And, um, you know, the, the term, I, the term in the time is, I guess was like a grab a hoe Indian for like, mm-hmm. that's what they would call these sort of like seasonal laborers. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's fucked on its face, you know, that's disturbing. But then when you consider the time frame that this would roll out, which would be the 1960s. Um, and here's another digression. That's like, <laughs> um, and this kind of, no worries. this kind of gets into, sort of like the Byzantine aspect nature of like indigenous governance interfacing with federal and provincial governments in Canada. Right. But up until the 1960s treaty reserves were not, were sovereign in the sense that they could have like relationships with the federal government or like the federal government had a fiduciary duty to kind of provide funding here and there. But provincial governments and federal governments weren't allowed to to operate on reserve which Mm -hmm. is which is you know which is a double-edged sword in the sense that you couldn't access any services on reserve but at the same time police weren't allowed on the reserve officially and like the army Mm -hmm. wasn't allowed on the reserve officially but in parallel with this labor program rolling out in the 1960s there was a few changes on the indian act which is the legislation that kind of governs things like that, right? But basically, uh, there was an amendment to the Indian Act that made federal government services able to operate on reserve. And what that meant is that, um, so in Canada, the criminal code is a federal legislation and social workers fall under that. So basically 
if a farmer came onto your reserve and kind of saw that you were living in this impoverished kind of squalid situation, like if you're in a road allotment community squatting or in an, on reserve and you, you were hungry and your kids were hungry and couldn't, couldn't really keep up that well because no running water, etc. In the 1960s, it became a reality that they would just be able to call a social worker and have your kids apprehended. So would they use that to basically cudgel, like, to keep the workers working at lower wages or something? I'm just guessing how it could be weaponized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's uh, this year there was like a settlement kind of rolled out between people that survived what was called the 60s scoop, which was, you know, as that legislation passed, social workers suddenly had just the run of any reserve community they wanted to go on to, right? So, hmm. so you had like, like literal like ads being taken out in newspapers with just like rows and rows of pictures of little native babies and toddlers just being like an Indian child is waiting for you. And just like, just a whole, Jeez. and, and you know, that, that continues today, maybe a little bit less disgustingly obvious, but the, like the rate of indigenous children in foster care in Canada is like higher than it's ever been in history. Mm. and you know and talk about like and so and then harken back to residential school and you can kind of see like you know anybody that grew up in foster care and had a bad time I think kind of knows what that means right yeah there's sort of, there's a whole host of things that go along with that for sure yeah so so basically you just had the situation where farmers especially wealthier ones that might have been looped into kind of local government and able to communicate with people that could let them know that this was now like something that you could use to exploit these exploit these populations would just start going. And you have people that survived these labor programs being like, yeah, like it was either, it was either have my kids apprehended or I just go work these, like go work in these beet fields. And the conditions were just fucked too, right? Like you had people living in like school buses with no wheels that people just like abandoned on the property. Just, yeah, just, yeah, all, all that is to say that there's just like, in terms of like, just just speaking strictly in terms of like, controlling labor, and just like moving populations to kind of like, begin in the service of whatever private industry, then that's, you have like this collaboration between like private farmers in the state that was rolling out these programs to control the movement of indigenous people and sort of like, their their live. Yeah. Now, let me run this idea past you, Lyle, because I feel like there's this sort of like maybe maybe like a liberal conception that like that all of this can be chalked up to just simple like misunderstandings. Like that, you know, maybe government doesn't fully understand the issue and then they might also have some problematic ideas that like maybe native populations don't understand certain things, but like I think what we're getting at, or at least one point that I think you're making is that like the cruelty is not like arbitrary and it's not sadistic in and of itself, but it's like driven by profit motive. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, like these things, like these horrible things aren't like happening 
for no reason. And I don't think most people like to just oppress people for fun. Like this is to serve like essentially like to steal land, to steal resources, to steal labor, to steal babies sometimes. Like it's all to a certain end and those ends are typically monetary, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and to that end, like all we have to do is just sort of look back again, just calling back to like the foundation of the the set of laws that began the colonial project. So like Terra Nullius, Dr. Mm-hmm. Discovery, et cetera, then even kind of stepping forward into the the next stage or the next parallel, we have like the, the Hudson's Bay Company basically being the governing body of Canada for the first Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Like the first hundred years or so of the hundred years. Yeah. The first hundred years, if not more or longer of governing that, like those territories before confederation and before Canada became a country, you know what I mean? Before it was just like the private holdings of the Hudson's Bay company that it exploited for beaver pelts. Right. Like I think that any, any of those, any of those people that, were members of the confederation that founded the provinces that that began organizing these these territories in the way that they did must have been able to see that like the Hudson's Bay Company and the I'm I'm pretty sure like the East India Company even operated on Canada for a while but like these oh really I think I want I would not be surprised <laughs> and I feel like I might have even read that I'm just gonna because yeah yeah i'm just gonna vet that real quick i'm just gonna yeah yeah. i'm just gonna earn myself really quick (laughs) east india company canada but i mean even just like the hudson's bay company and like the different competing um what was the official name of the east was it the dutch east india company or was i think it was okay hold on a sec but uh, even if it even if we are just talking about like the hudson's bay company and the few sort of competing trading companies that were exploiting labor in Canada like the like to kind of look at this country that you were born in and kind of gave you your fortune as like a founding father like that that had to kind of frame your understanding of like how to how to operate things right mm-hmm. so I think that and you know all you have to kind of look at is the way that the reserve system was organized to divert people into a capitalist labor market and that sort of valuation of their being forced to sort of value their time in that way. Yeah. And re- then sort of basically have their relationship to the land and, and whatever traditions that might've maintained their livelihood prior to just kind of ripped to shreds, whether that was by things like relocation through the reserve system or residential school. I mean, there's, there's one, um, so there's there's one court case in Canada that's really famous for um, making in in Canada there's this thing in the in the criminal code that is supposed to kind of guarantee Indigenous people that are facing charges um, kind of like a measure of consideration for their circumstances or for the impact of colonialism called uh, called and it's called like a Gladue report. Mm, yeah basically that's like you have to it's fucking bullshit like you have to hire a gladiator writer <laughs> to to interview you and do a bunch of archival research to to find out where you come from and like it, it's a good idea in theory but then it comes down to the judge's discretion and oh like to like 
is it to like ensure that you're actually native or what's is that the premise uh the premise is to like avoid prison time basically like if uh, so if you the gladu report writer kind of provides them like this report being like hey yeah this guy's from this guy's from uh let's say like he's from a road allotment settlement and growing up like his parents had to take him to fucking beet farms where he was like subjected to racial abuse by people or just like had to work 14 hours when he was like eight years old picking beets and shit and then he had to get into crime or whatever what what have you basically to kind of lay out the like life mm. the life circumstances that might have diverted him away from you know being like a I don't want to say a good person, quote unquote, but you know what I mean? Just sort of like diverted him into whatever. Into trouble or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But I mean, ultimately it's still just the discretion of the judge. So if you, so it's just like, if you have like some shit heel old dude that doesn't care, then it's just sort of like, Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I made a fucking $5,000 budget in my defense to like <laughs> to hire this report. Cool. I'm glad I had to like, sit through a three-hour interview talking about all my trauma (laughs) like yeah but i mean that's but one of the court cases that went into informing that being instituted in the criminal code was this um it was called rvip lee which was about like a inuit person that was getting um he was basically just given these very like illegal not actually illegal in the sense that it's not actually in the criminal code, but he was just given all these, like all these insane guidelines that he had to follow if he didn't want to get sent back to prison. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because the judge was racist, right? So, and part of that, and I was learning about that a while ago when I was in school and something that really just like, just fucking devastated me about that was in his Gladue report, and which was part of what informed the judge's decision or whatever. It was him talking about growing up. He was able to speak in Nuktatut. But and, I mean, all that is to say, like he grew up speaking his, his language, but he went to residential school for however many years when he was really young. And by the time he got to go back to his community, he only spoke English because of, he would be beaten if he spoke in Nuktatut or Denai or whatever his, his language was. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he... So he went back to his community where everybody spoke, like no one spoke English, right? But now there was this language barrier between him and these people that he'd grown up with and had raised him and had this trust. But because there was no language barrier, he had no way to articulate the way that he'd suffered there. Like he'd been sexually abused by these priests that were supposed to be his teachers and he, he just couldn't talk about it. And not in like a sense where it's like he didn't feel like he could. It was in the sense that he could try, but like no one understood him. You know, and that, and that's, God, I don't even remember why I talked about that. But that's just to kind of like articulate like the real, like, it's just like an abject horror, right? Like that kind of alienation is just so unfathomable to me. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you, because I just, because I think it's like such a good, case study that you sent me the uh starvation um the starvation study yeah holy fuck yeah jesus i know (laughs) and it's like tough right because it's like i know a lot a lot of times i feel like my show can sound like it's just like 
me recounting one aspect of bleak history to another to another right but like um <laughs> nevertheless i think it's important and you know maybe yeah late you know maybe we can like end on a lighter note but like oh, yeah. oh i still have that book passage to read to like the yeah indian bobby lee one but oh shit dutch east india company nootka sound baby west coast <laughs> oh jeez both sides fuck <laughs> but oh yeah the profit motive behind fucking behind all the behind sort of like the horrors of colonialism but yeah i mean it's i think you'd be hard pressed to i think anybody any like capitalist north american resource industry like resource extraction company would be hard pressed not to have to at least cop to some aspect of like one of their ancestors like really colluded with the government to like yeah to collude with the government just to like either get one of their have a reserve established near their mine or Mm -hmm. figure out some way to like access one of those reserve labor pools right through things like for example just like that that beet farming labor scheme right where conveniently and you know I, i don't think it's necessarily like I don't think like the beet farming contingent of Winnipeg is what changed the the Indian Act so that social workers could get on reserve, but I think that those labor schemes definitely saw the value in having through experience, you know, like by like some of them were probably cops or had some hand in like apprehending kids that tried to escape residential school, but like people kind of knew that in like indigenous communities were compromised in that way. And so if they found out that all it would take to get this family to pick up all six or seven of them and go work on their beet farm for next to nothing would be like to call a social worker. It's probably pretty appealing for a lot of folks. Yeah, no. And it really is like when you, like when you look at the whole thing holistically, I guess, right. Where it's like, okay, wow. How cool is it that Canada has like this strong social worker, like, bureaucracy and it's just like okay but like it's pretty much just used as like a gun to the head of like (laughs) this population then it's like okay well is that better than having no social workers at all like yeah i mean legitimately an open question right yeah i mean and it's tough too right because i think that you know you could talk to that's that's the thing it's like oh sick we have this like massive infrastructure for social work but too bad about 90 percent of it is just occupied constantly stealing children (laughs) yeah no goddamn so like legitimately and it's just like (laughs) it's really bleak yeah fuck but i mean that's the thing is like you gotta like there are indigenous people that are social workers that do the best they can and i feel like that's Mm -hmm. the most fucking liberal pat bullshit (laughs) i mean like i think i think bringing that up because that that's true right is that like you know, it is held up as like this kind of Scandinavian style social democracy. But the thing about Scandinavian countries is that they're not colonial and have this like, you know, I I certainly want to say that like a Scandinavian country is like racially homogenous because it's not true. And people like immigrate there and probably have an okay time sometimes. But, you know, when you have like a, a system like that built up in a settler colonial country, like, unfortunately, like we've kind of learned through learned by example it's employed to the end of like assimilative 
genocidal and like ex- like exploitative on the side of capital, right? But yeah, it's like it's it's such a hard question because I don't want to be like an Alex Jones, NWO fucking like family court freak and be like, yeah, yeah, no, because it's like it really does seem like schizophrenic at times because on the one hand it seems like there are elements of like the policy and i by no means just canada also in the in the united states where it's like there seem to be some people or you know certain groups that just want to like just eliminate and just like get rid of native american people and the the flip side is like there's groups that just want to use them as a labor pool. And then like, so like, it's almost like a, a policy ping ponging back and forth between the two. Yeah, absolutely, man. And like, it's, and, you know, and like the eliminating native American people goes in like so many different directions and like every one of these points that you mm-hmm. bring up is just like a rabbit hole unto itself because there's like the material, like let's work, let's, like create these rest of populations to work until they die. And then there's also the more kind of uh, ideological ontological aspect of it with like status and blood quantum laws and stuff where it's like the settler colonial government is like legislating, like what constitutes like an Indian, you know what I mean? Where someone like me, that's like mixed or whatever, isn't native by some sort of like abstract rubric or just sort of like racializing this thing that yeah i don't know that's let's avoid going down too many rattles <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's a whole other thing and i feel like there's a lot of there's a lot of people that could talk about that a lot better than i can that are also maybe uh better and have less have less of an interest in defending their indigenate <laughs> <laughs> jokes no worries jokes call me uh, i know what i am <laughs> well i'll probably cut this but it's funny because like my wife is like latina right but like she is white passing too so like she always has this complicated like interplay where she's like trying to like be like okay exactly what is going on yeah yeah absolutely man and it's like that's just and you know i found that that's really normal like Mm -hmm. it's just yeah there's just like a lot of a lot of dynamics you definitely, definitely can tell that we live in a society. <laughs> a stuff. I can most assuredly <laughs> agree that we live in a society. Oh my God, do we ever? Um, okay, so sorry. I'll, I'll try and get us back on track. No, no worries. I, I was going to ask you, what is the track? What, like, where are we? What should we? I like the. I like this thread that we kind of caught on of like what, like why do these systems occur? you know it's mm-hmm. not like this sort of, sort of like abstract horror or like this not these just sort of like evil abstract things that are happening but they're sort of they're there for a strategic strategic yeah. purpose right so i think that like you were mentioning like the starvation experiments and stuff and i think that would be a really good way to kind of drive that home because it's not just like it doesn't stop at like private capital kind of taking advantage of these happenstances but you know the state itself was like Hmm. invested in developing like developing this sort of like project around like what is a canadian what is a canadian diet what is officially a canadian diet <laughs> and then like look yeah and just having to have these schools full of kids that couldn't go anywhere and we're sort of like yeah you know let's explain that so what was going on what like what are we talking about with these experiments 
yeah so so we've got like you mentioned um you know these the way that these sort of events are often talked about in like a history class for instance or just sort of like in the news or i don't know where where do these events get talked about but just i think that you know these sort of horrors of colonial projects and colonial states are kind of framed as just like god we were we were so ignorant back then and like it's just these very sort of like chalking them up as these sort of like abstract horrors and like senseless violence and this sort of thing. But, yeah. you know, like we talked about with the, like the Grabaho Indian labor scheme where you had private farms and enterprises taking advantage of legislation that they knew they could exploit to, to force indigenous families to go and work on their harvest like just go and work for them for next to nothing under threat of having their their children apprehended right Mm -hmm. um which is horrific enough but there's even even like deeper deeper history of that exploitation past just sort of like these relocation programs and that and that's um you know it's just the maybe like a this program to chill do a content warning (laughs) is this a content warning type, type of podcast (laughs) <laughs> no yeah I've, I've done content warnings a couple times i do think that like like yeah it's fun to make fun of like certain tumblr applications yeah, but yeah. like for sure like when i'm talking say like pedophile shit like i always want to like let people know ahead of time right yeah so- or you know whatever else sexual assault or whatever yeah maybe maybe we'll drop a content warning because I've, I've really tried to avoid getting into that aspect of the residential schools just because it's something that is put out there so so much and so often that it's it's yeah, yeah you know it's just exploitative in a different way but you know maybe like content warning for like people that have been in situations where they've starved you know it's that's mm-hmm. that's you know that if there's one thing i've heard from friends of mine that grew up in foster care and stuff is that they just went hungry a lot like it was just something that foster families used as like a it was just it's just, it seems to be a very common way to punish somebody or to discipline somebody in their mm. situation. But um, we're not talking about foster families. We're, we're going to talk about residential schools again. <laughs> so yeah, um, I might, I'm going to try to discuss this very, uh, very cautiously because I, again, I'm trying to maintain my opsec, <laughs> but but and yeah. I I work part of my job is um, basically working with healthcare providers to make sure that Indigenous people get adequate healthcare. And one thing that I've encountered that's been sort of surprising is how fucking glib and racist dietitians can be. <laughs> oh yeah. Um. So, which is, you know, like the. Uh, hmm. what is the best way to kind of bring this in but so basically you know residential schools we've discussed them already a little bit it's just basically boarding schools children were apprehended from their families taken from the reserve and people were transported like thousands of miles away like there's a there are schools in Quebec which is on the east coast kind of around Detroit that would have hosted kids that were taken from different reserves in like I'm just trying to like Alberta and BC, which would be like Seattle and Montana. 
to kind it's of... like can't be anything but like an intentional strategy right and oh, why yeah. on earth would you bus him across to the other side of the country except to like put distance and whatever totally this is and it's all about the isolation right and that's yeah and that's where this that strategy kind of comes in with this aspect of it where the does does america have a food guide like is there like a of oh yeah no okay <laughs> Lyhall, not only do we have like some fucked up dietary stuff too but like would you believe that there was like some freaking nazi shit going on with our fda as well <laughs> funny you should mention that uh... <laughs> so so the canadian food guide is like i guess just like the american food guide just sort of like a little pyramid where there's some grain at the bottom and then yeah. The fucking nanny state is telling you what to eat, <laughs> what snacks are good, and what treats are fine. But, but the 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 calor the caloric intake that's sort of designated as like not enough, too much, or I guess just not enough in this case, basically came from dietitians working for the Canadian state, running starvation experiments with children in residential schools. So. Yeah, you know, and you know, it's like, oh God, I'm, I fucking hate doing this. Maybe we should cut this. I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave it to I'll leave it to your discretion. But like, you know, it's it's definitely evocative of a certain political party doing a genocide on a certain population. No, listen, I don't think that like it's no, no. <laughs> it's. I mean. It's whatever you want, but like I don't think that like that's particularly offensive. It was literally starving children. Like it's not like it stretched to compare it to like starvation situations in other places. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> As, like you're like you're not being flippant about it. So I don't think anyone's gonna get mad. Okay. So that's well, whatever you want to say. Uh legitimate apologies in advance if someone just doesn't like that and i uh yeah anyways but uh, i mean all this is to say that like this these you know like you said like there's to run these kind of experiments in schools where you know that you're not accountable to anybody's family these children like don't know what you're doing so they're like the perfect control group right like they can't understand your language you know like they don't understand like what they're being fed or what they're not being fed yeah, is that that's, that's one thing that people, like survivors of the residential school system, always talk about, right? Is like the the quality of the food being horrendous or not being there at all. So basically, like these these dietitians would just like isolate groups. Like often these weren't co-ed, right? So you'd have like you'd have like the girls getting one type of diet and the boys getting one type of diet, and then they would just sort of like compare and contrast. And like one school and it would just sort of flip to try to account for gender differences or just like just like all kinds of like deranged bullshit and then just like and this was operating from what i understand this was operating across the country because like the canadian food guide is a federal federal piece of legislation or whatever right and like the federal government is in charge of the indian act and residential schools and the reserves like what's interesting in the article is it says that like necessarily there were controls like control groups that were intentionally being malnourished 
at, to function as a control. So it's like, okay, well, we're going to try like this type of flower for this group, this other type of flower, you know, what happens if we add this element and that, and then there was a control group that was just being straight starved. Like this was like unethical experimentation, like by any metric that you can pick. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, and it's just horrific to think about, you know, and it's just, um, you know, if there's one thing that I think we're trying to, to drive home in this episode is just sort of like the parallels that keep coming up in history. Like it's, it's corny as shit and it's very pat and definitely not true across all, all cases, but like history does seem to be repeating itself in this case and that mm-hmm. you have, you have this state or this private corporation that sees this exploitable population and sort of like the depths of the depravity of the treatment that they they're subjected to and then sort of the the rhetorical and ontological and ideological ways that this is sort of like either not addressed or addressed in a way that like you said earlier like there's and there's still fucking people that talk about this but they're just like oh residential schools were like like a ironically there's also the kind of people that like want to nuke parliament (laughs) <laughs> they're just like, yeah the, the residential school is like a benef like a benevolent institution because it taught these kids these little salves how to speak english right so mm-hmm. it's and and you know they have that very wild kind of cognitive dissonance coming up again but um yeah and just and you know when you think about those experiments and just how incomplete those those studies are and then in like in tandem kind of think about um there's a lot of nations right now that are either saving up like their own funds there's just sort of like fundraising through like uh like businesses that the band office runs or lobbying the government to pay for it but there there are a lot of nations that are doing ground penetrating radar at the sites of former residential schools so mm-hmm. um so you have like last year actually around this time last year the the Shaputnik nation in the, the interior of BC, the Tacomops band there found 250 bodies under their residential school that were previously unaccounted for. Mm-hmm. So you have like, like that, and that's, and you know, it doesn't take, like, I don't, I feel like I don't need to explain like why that's so like mind boggling, right? Like, like yeah. whose kids are these? Like, who are they? You know, like how did they die? And then you consider things like these experiments and like the the forced labor aspect of these places, and it's just like fuck. Yeah, I want to say for the listeners' sake. So we're recording this shortly after one of the big school shootings that occurred, and so I was telling Lyle that I was in just a really terrible mood, having read a bunch about it and really been you know sort of on one about reading all about that shit and like I knew you know we would have this interview and I was of course very excited and I don't not trying to be always bleak or whatever but like I was thinking about like how you know how I feel now and then just imagining like magnifying that by like 10 20 30 times because that's how many kids died in just this one fucking residential school like you know like just I don't think that like there's really any way to like talk about it 
you know like you literally can't talk about it like and like convey you know what should be done you know we'd probably be taken off of platforms if we actually said what should be done about that hypothetically in minecraft yeah (laughs) in a novel i read yeah, exactly. Uh, um, but yeah, man, and, and you know, it's there's be an Indian hospital, which is a whole other fucking another one, another fucking one. Mm-hmm. Walking through the prairies, eating shit, stepping in different gopher holes, and falling over. <laughs> mm-hmm. But basically, like the like provincial health authorities saw all these indigenous people getting tuberculosis, and were like, oh there must be like some sort of mutant strain of tuberculosis that was created by these disgusting, like genetic freaks Indians are or whatever. And didn't, they just assumed that this like Indian tuberculosis was like a super, a super virulent strain that was created basically in the same way that like monkeypox was, you know what I mean? Mm. So their answer was to like quarantine a bunch of native people in different hospitals and just keep them separate. And, you know, there's stories about people like just, uh, I, yeah, I don't know. It's a whole, all that is to say that like, it doesn't even just stop at residential schools. It's like the health authorities that have been like, like the, these like hospitals and like the different like federal, cause the, this like public health care in Canada. Right. So, like, these state hospitals now are even, like, doing ground-penetrating radar and finding bodies. Oh, jeez. All right, I have a note down. Because, like, normally, like, I do, (laughs) with a lot of my guests, like, you know, I do the same thing where I'm like, oh, you can tell me to cut anything. And, like, nine times out of ten, like, nobody has anything. But, like, you know, I like, you know, in the parapolitical thing, people like to pretend like they're paranoid or could actually face some repercussions. And, you know, we're mostly like, you know, acting, but like, I think with you and this whole thing, it's like one of the few times where it's like, no, you, like you could actually like face some repercussions and like, I might get a stern talking to by my elder or fired. One, I'm, one of those I'm fine with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty fine. With both. Uh, that's the thing right it's just like i don't want to lay it on i don't want to lay it on too thick or necessarily like excuse me just like rehash aspects of this state project and stuff that have just been kind of covered in different podcasts or documentaries and stuff which is why it's like i'm glad we were able to touch on like the the grab a hoe and and then like that that labor aspect of it right because that's like very gustavus myers type type shit yeah, I think that's not something that's really talked about often or generally like, you know, in like the the aspect of like indigenous participation in the labor market is really there's like a deep history to that. That's positive. That's like kind of that's kind of cool and positive in a, in a few different ways that just is very mm. understudied. So like, for instance, like um, the Squamish nation had just started like a wildcat. I don't would you call it a wildcat? I guess it's like an illegal union. They started like an illegal longshoreman union in like mm. 1910 with a bunch of Hawaiian longshoremen that were just living on their reserve. And oh, really? Yeah. And it was, it was called the bows and arrows, which is fucking badass, but, <laughs> um, but it was just like all indigenous laborers and Hawaiian laborers. And I think some Chinese and Japanese ones as well, but they like, 
they wound up like going as a delegation to the first IWW conference in Chicago and like helped found that organization which is so sick and god all DJs are sus I will say that (laughs) leave it at that (laughs) well it's just like calm down like you gotta get to the point where you could theoretically like actually like achieve something before you start making (laughs) wildly alienating statements i mean good god like if nothing like that's just like god imagine close your eyes you're in a time machine it's (laughs) chicago 1910 with his delegation of wobblies and you stand up and say i think that fucking renters should pay rent to the indigenous host nations as well as their landlords it's like what imagine the shame (laughs) hearing you utter those fucking words it's just uh i don't know anyways um, Mm -hmm. but all that is this this ontological uh, operation goes both ways (laughs) yeah i was gonna say and that's not like there's a bunch of other wobbly connections like there were like native people in the um in the wobblies early on as well totally and even like um oh fuck what is it was it the lumbi there's like a i remember reading about this fucking running battle that lumbi iww members and like other just whoever like union folks and like lumbi iww fought like a running battle with the clan mm. like georgia or something like that and one which is actually fuck i should send it to you there's a there's a powwow singing group there's a powwow drum group named Warpaint that are from some i think they're from north carolina but they actually have a song in their language about that i think it was like the battle of hayes creek yeah you'll have to send me that because like i feel like that's probably like we're maybe getting closer to like a a good <laughs> topic to like you know go out with which is like just like the like the uh shared interest that all people have in like basically like opposing the uh financial order that exploits all of us yeah. certainly well, shit. you know you guys more for sure you know man like one thing one thing i will say is that justin trudeau has not had to has not been held to account for the fact that his dad presided over the peak of the residential school system mm. like from like he was in power in like the early 60s up until excuse me sorry i don't uh i'm not up on the political dynasties of the frog eaters here <laughs> whatever the fuck i don't even know i guess what are french what do french people drink i guess they're also petter ass uh, <laughs> what do they drink like wine brandy oh, oh yeah know, like cheese whatever <laughs> they suck <laughs> trudeau trudeau fucking sucks um i mean not to like kink shame or whatever but like what do you think the over under is on like pure trudeau being like a weird cuck guy with like Castro? <laughs> buddy someone who is not me probably thinks that alleged <laughs> i don't even know this. i think that the over under on pierre trudeau's having an oopsie with fidel castro and accidentally <laughs> having a bastard <laughs> i think the over under on 
Justin Trudeau being an alleged fail son of both a very prestigious prime minister and one of the most, uh, what would you call, what would you call Fidel Castro, a stalwart figure of a, a, a hero yeah <laughs> a fail son to both a villain and a hero yeah <laughs> he's a disappointment just, to all people disappointment to all people actual bastard <laughs> um, <laughs> does that mean you don't have a dad or does that mean you don't have... yeah okay you don't i mean you, know, you don't have to cut any of this i don't give a fuck about this there's got to be some psychology behind that guy to where you would put on blackface not once (laughs) not twice what what are we at like three or four times documented well are we are we differentiating blackface from attempting to portray someone of west asian or (laughs) (laughs) heritage or no not sikh sikh is a sikh is not a race that is a religion um yes perhaps i mean we've got at least three blackface where i think he's reaching for something specific and then we've got four very vague things mm, yeah god knows how many but all, all of this is to say he's probably yes definitely not <laughs> not not of who he thinks he is at least that. um okay but yeah no pierre pierre trudeau was in office in different capacities from 1968 to 1984 so you know these highly complicit uh like god beyond complicit like mm-hmm. you know overseeing the 60s scoop overseeing the peak of residential schools and this is just and you know and now his son is you know he's he left the blackface at home but he's really 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 excited about wearing headdresses uh <laughs> fucking loves to oh yeah the man. he does that too i forgot my man fucking loves to sit in the tp <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hey, well, I mean, like symbolic gestures are all that they have now, right? I don't even know if he has that anymore, man. Like, mm-hmm. if people fucking hate Trudeau, <laughs> like they, yeah, it's it's so like Canada is such a fucking bewildering place to be because you could like be at a trucker protest and like having all these people saying fuck Trudeau and then like just be literally anywhere else and having everybody else saying fuck Trudeau. So, <laughs> <laughs> unifying the country in that sense yeah which is nice but it's also a little bit unsettling because it's just like there's nothing after that like there's nothing beyond mm-hmm. this, like disgusting slug of a political dynasty this like dry turd i mean maybe he puts on the black face because he has such a black heart stupid Oh, just I see what you're going for. <laughs> I see what you're going for, man. Didn't but, quite, whatever. <laughs> hey, how about this? Rip, no one said riffing was my strong suit. Okay. How, about, how about this? Next time you see Pierre, next time you see Justin Trudeau in blackface, it's not actually blackface. He's been immolated in a video game. Mm, That's also yeah. a bad riff. That's, I should stop. <laughs> That's, that, cut that, please. <laughs> if this is on the free side, <laughs> remix and cut that. <laughs> God damn. This is like the Patreon side release where I say heinous, heinous shit about <laughs> things that might happen to Pierre Elliott Trudeau in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, oh, I was, 
I was gonna ask, like, sort of separate, like, for <laughs> all of the good topics, because, um, you know, I haven't had that much exposure to Native American people, but, like, you know, other than the couple years I lived in the Pacific Northwest, like, one time, like, I went, I went, and I, like, did this trip with a couple buddies, and for some reason, like, we just, we were, we went to New Mexico, right? That's where one of my buddies was. And we went to like, of all things, a high school football, football game. <laughs> this was like when we were in college or whatever. Yeah, whatever. Okay. And this high school that we went to, my buddy didn't tell me and I didn't know, but his, he went to a high school that was like 90% like Native American kids. So it was like, you know, I had no idea. So we we're at this football game where everyone on both sides was like, Native American and I was just like it was pretty much the first time I'd ever seen Native Americans and like what struck me and I had no idea was that it, without fail Lyle, every single kid had a metal t-shirt of a different band fuck yeah dude <laughs> and I'm I'm talking like not even just like the obvious stuff like Iron Maiden I'm talking like the like stuff I hadn't heard of at all like we're talking like real metal heads. And I was just like, when did this happen? Like, I, obviously I'm not like in touch with the community at all, but I was just like, at least in New Mexico, all the native American kids were like metal heads. And I was just like blown away. Fuck, that's crazy. You see, like, I've definitely heard about that. Like I have a lot of friends in Arizona and like, or I have a lot of friends. Yeah. But I guess some of them still live in Arizona, but the one thing that they always say is that the music scene on the res is fucking sick. Just like really, like in terms of that, yeah, right? Like the metalheads and stuff like that. Like into like a lot of guys in like the punk and hardcore scene would always say that like the wildest bands came off the res and like just so maybe it's sort of like a regional thing. Then I guess I think so. I mean, there's one, there's one band from Canada that are from like super super far north BC, and they're mm. they're they're not a band anymore, unfortunately, because they fucking it sucks they like went on tour with this shit nazi metal band called uh i can't are they called like incantation or some dumb bullshit but they didn't know they were a fucking nazi band until they like on a tour spot and one dude took off his shirt and just had a fucking massive swastika so you hear it's just like thick ass metal band with full of like of all native people from like simshan and they were like come on (laughs) like god fucking damn it and then they broke up Jeez, fucking! That's so stupid. You shouldn't even have to, but unfortunately, like you do have to like vet bands like for Nazi shit. Going as shit, man. But but uh, they're called Giba. Actually, I'll send you their. I'll send you a couple of songs of theirs. But they're fucking dope. Like all of their songs, they sang in um. God, I wish I could pronounce the name. I wish I could knew how to pronounce the language, but I think it's Smelkloks, which is like the. Like the language that people in the far north of BC speak, like Simshan and Gixan mm. will speak it, I think. But it's just extremely sick, mm. black and dwarf. That metal, if, cool. if that means anything to a listener out there, if you want to listen to some very extremely sick black and war metal, <laughs> oh yeah, which is perhaps a uh, perhaps I might have embarrassed <laughs> myself. <laughs> no, that sounds cool. <laughs> okay, I'll send you some of those. Maybe throw that, drop that shit. Um, um, yeah that's fucking cool i mean yeah there's and there's definitely regional stuff like that all over like the way that indigenous people have kind of like 
taken up different subcultures or kind of adapted those into their own in their own way is really neat like i know in minnesota i think there's a lot of like native b-boys in the 80s and 90s which is such a oh really such a funny i was i was wondering if there was like i mean obviously i know theoretically there's probably almost every genre you know but like i was wondering if there was like native hip-hop yeah because i basically don't know (laughs) that much like i'm like i read books i don't (laughs) i read uh, i read books i don't listen to (laughs) no i mean i i mean you're right in the sense that it's like um uh there certainly is like indigenous music like indigenous people play all sorts of different genres and stuff like that but there's you know i um call me a call me an asshole but i'm not crazy about a lot of it you know, but the when mm-hmm. someone really nails it, it's extremely cool. So, like you know, like Cuba, for instance. Like, I I personally am a a, a metal enjoyer, a particularly <laughs> really like raw, like really raw kind of like you know. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, the kind of metal I like is often full of Nazis. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> You know, that's my cross to bear, and that's just something I have to live with. Well, I mean, I was really huge into like oi punk music, and like, oh, but fuck yes, you can't throw a rock without hitting a fucking like Nazi in that genre either. Okay, can we take a real quick digression to talk about oi? <laughs> mm-hmm. I haven't talked about real dumb oi shit for a minute. I fucking what, what are some bands that you like? give me some give me some reference points are you like a okay coxbar guy or are you uh yeah so i I went through the whole like compilation like that uh, was it strength through oi that was a good one to like get a taste um nikki craig coxbar what was the one about the riot they had the song about the riot oh please I guess it's because, like, I was like way into like the street (laughs) punk and like a lot of the you know just punk music, but like, there's a bunch of like more modern stuff too, like Booze and Glory, I think, was one that was like you know more modern. I'm trying to remember, and I'm like, (laughs) I I, I will say this I'm not a fan of Screwdriver, and I'm definitely (laughs) not gonna. Yeah, this part. but like no matter the what. first album when they're not Nazis, to be fair, they weren't Nazis yet, right? Not a bad album. Oh, Running Riot is that the Coxbar song? Yeah, yeah, I oh, think so. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude! <laughs> yeah. All that stuff, man. Yeah, I feel. I mean, my apologies. I feel like making screwdriver jokes whenever someone talks about oi is a little bit hack. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> like... <laughs> and you know who deserves a fucking episode is Nikki Crane. That dude on the cover of Strength Through Oi. Oh yeah, it was wasn't he like what was his deal again? Oh man, what wasn't his deal? My man was a uh, <laughs> my man was an Italian neo-Nazi living in Britain, <laughs> which is which is funny <laughs> enough on its face. But he was also uh, he was he was also very gay. He was very gay. <laughs> what the fuck? See, that's the funniest side to like the <laughs> whole like skinhead thing is like how super gay it was for oh. being also such a Nazi thing. Oh my! Well, I mean, it's such a weird dynamic because it's just like there's like the 
there's like the gay first skinhead second thing where it's just kind of like a fetish right and then there's like the mm-hmm. the nazi first gay second thing where it's also kind of a fetish <laughs> <laughs> but it's just but this guy is just such a had such a wild life because you know he he was involved with a lot of like the far right movements in the 80s well so, so he was like a bodyguard for instance at like he was like a bodyguard for some guys in like national front and shit and would like go to these demonstrations but then he would like moonlight as a bot as like a bouncer for gay bars it's funny because like that sounds like it's like you know discordant but it's like that's what the nazis were into like the original nazis yeah uh, honestly yeah some real weimar shit (laughs) yeah but i mean but then it's sort of like but i mean even beyond that like he was like he shot a whole bunch of pornos and shit really yeah like like a really wild life like i would but i I mean i I guess near the end of his life or not near the end he died pretty young like i think he uh he passed away from complications with aids right but Mm. i think that eventually he like renounced the the far right stuff and kind of really settled into his identity that as just like a a gay guy that was into skidheads instead of a fucking nazi (laughs) that you know was also into skidheads i guess i don't but i don't know what i'm trying to say there but you know, he was, uh, yeah, eventually he was outed, I think, and tried some, yeah, it was just like a whole, a whole fucking thing. Very, very trippy-ass story. That's so funny. Oh. I wonder if there were ever, like, oh, that's probably a whole thing, like, if there were the Native American skinheads. Uh, let me... I feel like... Like there had to have been, right? Like Minnesota, right? Like there's both tons of like skinheads and like Yeah. If any if it happened anywhere, it had to have been Minnesota, right? <laughs> well, see that's the thing too though. It's like um oh, in the same month the UK newspaper The Sun ran an article on him entitled Nazi Nick is a pansy. <laughs> incredible (laughs) i don't think like say what you will of his sexual orientation i don't think anyone ever said he was a pansy (laughs) god damn but but i mean it's in new york is an interesting one to think about too because um Mm. there's um there's like a huge uh iroquois community in new york that base that have like a like basically, like there are iron workers unions that are all Iroquois people. Oh yeah, didn't they? Wasn't there a whole thing with like them working on skyscrapers or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, and if you think about that in like the eighties, right? Like, mm. like different bands from New York, like um, fucking uh, <laughs> New York hardcore, like like Breakdown and uh, just like all like Breakdown and Madball and all those bands like that. Like, you know, I've I hear conflicting tales about whether or not those bands were actually like full of working class people or just like or <laughs> squatters, which is, I mean, honestly, like both are sick and critical support to squatters and also working class people, I guess. Yeah. I don't know what critical support means, but I don't, if it, mean, if it means I back them and with everything in my power, then that's what I mean. Um, but, you know, to think that there's, you know, there's probably like a fucking... A, a Iroquois punk rocker here and there that would probably wear like a bomber jacket and shave their head and mosh to really good songs. <laughs> yeah, it's got to have happened somewhere. Oh yeah, 
I mean, look at me. I had a mohawk <laughs> and I had a shaved head at some point or another. There you go. Bring that a boom. Um, but I mean, but if and even if like this is just like thinking about that, you know, like for all for all of this for all of like this really like disturbing history that we've been talking about of like these these populations that were subjected to like you know just inconceivable structures and like like truly horrific efforts to control them and to subjugate them and just really like snuff out any sort of like just like really just like just snuff out that spirit right like there's there are stories about people that you know managed to escape it or like survived it and you know i think that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that is always important in the same way that you know we were talking in the beginning a bit about how like you know this this was a genocidal project and it's really easy to acknowledge that when you're kind of talking about like the founding myth of canada or the united states and just kind of brush by it but you know it's it's always you know, speaking for myself personally but i can imagine that this would be something that a lot of people feel is that when you kind of just like reference a, a genocidal project and leave it at that it, there is sort of like this this unspoken kind of there's like affinitude to it you know what i mean like it's sort of just like yes there was a genocide and then like obviously the implication is that like yeah they say it and they sort of like are like dusting their hands off like well we got that out of the way that was in the past yeah and i mean it's like you know like the the implication might like to them them being whoever is like addressing this as like a an aspect of like the the american state it's like you know they might not be intending to to leave it at that or accidentally like reify that but you know that's the outcome so <laughs> so kind of maybe maybe broach it a little bit differently i don't know um but, but i mean it's hard right because like we've just spent like three hours like talking about like a couple different aspects of it without and that's and that still just kind of feels like we're just like dipping our toes in this boiling soup or whatever. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, like for for all of that, like there there are like really amazing stories about you know communities of working class people and indigenous people either coming together like on the prairies, like in those rural settings, or or just like these communities developing in cities and um. I would hope that, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's my responsibility. I'm the one that is coming here and being like, uh, I'm the, I'm the native experience kind of getter guy. <laughs> I don't fucking know. The native understander. I'm the native, that's me. Here I am, the native <laughs> understander. <laughs> that's not a caveat. Jokes. <laughs> but, you know, there, there is that really... There is a forever for all this history of like these these really ugly things. There's like a very rich history of like organizing in indigenous communities in partnership with like white people, black people, Asian people, just like just across the board and like creating these relationships, right? And like, but just like just like these like just yeah, just people support like working people supporting one another. You know what I mean? Mm. That could look like the. <clears throat> that could look like the battle of Hayes pond, um, you know, where Lumbee people and the IWW like beat the living shit out of a bunch of Ku Klux Klan members in fucking Georgia yeah. or North Carolina, not Georgia, but, but yeah, that's, and so 
I, I talked about this book with you a lot in the DMs and when we were preparing for the for the episode, but there's a, a really famous book called a Bobby Lee Indian Rebel, or I guess famous in Canada in indigenous literary circles or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the fuck that means. Famous in those like third or sixth degree away from like whatever mainstream literary discussion happens. <laughs> but, you know, it's a... Uh, this author named Lee Miracle, who is a, a mixed indigenous person in Canada, did like a, I guess she participated in like an autobiography writer circle or something in the in the 80s. And she just wrote about her life up to that point. And I think she was only like 19 or something when she wrote it. But man, there is like just incredible anecdotes and stories about the workers movement in Vancouver, where she was living at that time. Um, yeah, just like really, really like wild stories about just like this parallel organizing that happened between like the, the native Alliance for red power, which is like a, a legit, like Maoist study circle that came up in Vancouver that would do, um, because there is like a, a group of native people that were living there that did like seasonal labor down in like apple orchards in LA. So they met the black Panthers and like, they like mm. took a bunch of their newsletters up to Canada and started distributing them at like the, the native community center and just like, and then they eventually they even went on like people's delegations. Like people would like, like members of NARP would like go to Cuba and work in the sugarcane fields and like do their political education there. And like even that's wild, dude. I know, <laughs> like, like me. That's like, so cool. Like Lee Miracle went to China with some other people and met Chairman Mao. Holy shit! Like indigenous <laughs> groups in China, which is just like God. It just my mind. It's just like what the fuck? That's <laughs> like what? <laughs> fuck the UN, dog. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's so funny because, and you know, I'm not cutting you off here, but like I was gonna say, like there's like this passage I recently read from Mao where he was just like Marxism is not like we don't like Marxism because it's like a beautiful ideology or because it's like you know it has some resonance with the Chinese people or this or that we like it because it's useful fuck that ass <laughs> and it's like yeah it's like to the extent that it's useful like go for it if not you know whatever but yeah it's a sweet science baby <laughs> <laughs> um okay i found that passage there i sent you the other day but um let's see do 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 so and i did get the book by the way i just haven't read it yet but i do hope to oh, yeah. right on. awesome yeah it's a it's a really good one it's like it's pretty it's a pretty easy read but obviously I don't want to fucking twist your arm. <laughs> no, no, I think I will for sure. Yeah. So, da, 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 da. so maybe I'll just read this little page or so in there. And if it's like, mm -hmm. if it isn't too long and annoying, no, like, like a page of me reading this book. So, um, no, I mean, I'm always reading passages. It's cool. Hell yeah. So, so Wayne and Jerry put me onto this little group called NARP that put out a newsletter and they shared it with me, and I, I read their first issue. It sounded pretty good to me. The main theme seemed to be, we don't need whites. So, <laughs> sort of an anti-white culture thing. 
along with the demand for red power. They also wrote about their first demonstrations, which was religious. Many, wait, hold on. Oh, sorry. Because I don't have the book in front of me and I'm reading this passage at an incredibly annoying angle. I don't know why people always post fucking passages from novels and shit on their Instagram stories. Like, my. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't hardly read those no. photos half the time. No, my brother in Christ, this is at like a 62 degree angle. <laughs> <I> can't <laughs> read shit. Um, so, so in the beginning of this, she's just talking about meeting her, uh, some politically conscious indigenous people in Vancouver that are putting her onto NARP, which is like the native action for red power, like that Maoist reading circle. And she's describing her first kind of encounters with them. And so she says, um, you know, I read the first issue of their newsletter and it sounded pretty good to me. The main theme to see the main theme seemed to be, we don't need whites sort of an anti-white culture thing along with the demand for red power. They also wrote about their first demonstrations, which was against religious, mainly Catholic, schools. They called it cultural genocide and objected to schools not allowing Indians to speak and be taught in their own languages. And, you know, this was like 1977 that she was writing this just for like some context, right? Like this is, mm-hmm. this is like, this was the time frame that she's writing about, which is. It's like pretty like, uh, I get like, I guess it would be the wrong term, but like, that's pretty like. That's stuff you would hear now. Like that's pretty advanced for like the time I would imagine. Yeah, totally. And you know, that's, and that's one thing about the residential school system that doesn't get taught a lot about is that, you know, like the families that were being subjected to it weren't passive with it. Like um, there's stories about like entire reserves and communities just like completely uprooting themselves. And there's photos of like massive teepee camps, just like on the outer gates of these schools, just so that they could be nearer to the kids. So just like, yeah, it's, it's stuff like that's just really moving. And it's it's always really nice to, to hear that, you know, these, like, this isn't like an old thing that people just sort of let happen or whatever. Like, there's always been organizing around it. But anyway, anyway, back to back to Bobby Lee. Um, I told Joan I'd like to attend one of their meetings. Sure, she said. They hold them on Tuesday nights. Then she made a phone call and arranged for someone to pick me up. The following Tuesday, Gordy came by for me with Ray and we drove down to Hastings Street. He said they were meeting above China Arts and Crafts in the Progressive Workers Movement offices, where NARP had its newsletter printed. As we went in, we passed through the back of this pub. I remember Ray asking me if I wanted to go for a wet. I never heard that expression before, and I thought it maybe he wanted to go to the bathroom. So I said, sure, I'll wait for you here. Then he explained and said, maybe we should go get the others. <laughs> we, we went out front but I still wasn't quite sure what his intentions were. Gordy and Jerry were there, but Jerry said she wasn't old enough to get in. She was only 20 and couldn't pass for older. Her baby face made her look 15. Ray said, well, why don't we just pick up a case and bring it upstairs? By that time, others had arrived and everyone agreed. The progressive workers' movement offices were on the second floor. They had a printing press and off on the landing, a section for collating and stapling. A few PWM guys were there along with us, along with about six NARP members. They were talking about Cuba and the Vietnamese revolution. And as I looked around the place, my eyes fell on the barrel of rifles standing on the corner. Wayne Tom was sitting there on top of them. And I thought, Christ, all this talk about revolution and here are all these rifles. (laughs) I was a bit scared, but didn't know quite what to think of it. 
about a week later, I asked Ray about the guns, and he said they belonged to the PAWM, not NARP. <laughs> the first night, I helped collate and staple their newsletter. People were talking and arguing all the time about politics, about some guy who was coming over from Vancouver Island to speak, and a soccer game that was planned between the PWM and NARP on the weekend. There was a lot of teasing and joking going along, along with the work and beer drinking. It really wasn't much of a meeting, mainly a work session. When we'd finished, they told me they were planning to sell the newsletter around town, especially at the Indian Center dances. They also mentioned that they had this discussion group at the center in which NARP people participated. It was on Friday, and they asked me to come along. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I remember reading that when I was just starting to go to school and kind of beginning to get more involved in, like, organizing and stuff like that, and... Yeah, you know, it's sometimes it's kind of, you know, at, at the risk of sounding like a fucking complainer, or like, like someone that's had it had like a hard time or something like that. Because my, you know, I'm like I look pretty white, so I'd never really got that hard of a time when I was growing up. But just, you know, you you always kind of notice when there's just a lot of people around you that are telling you you don't look native or some shit. You know what I mean? So it's. I just remember like reading that passage and just being like really, really excited about organizing after reading that because it's like outside and like it because those it's just like this really fun, exciting scene of like someone just like stumbling into this like really collaborative kind of space where there's it just seems like there's a lot of potential, right? But yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> I don't know if you have the quote in front of you, but like I, I was like going to quote you saying this, but <laughs> it was the um, the victims of the oh, centuries me, old aunt. Let's, let's get a good quote for that. Let's get, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe put in like some it. like orchestral swell or some. Put some like yeah. Put some like Maoist Chinese like put some Maoist <laughs> like workers orchestra behind this, but just like you know, for all like. For all like the stuff that we've talked about today and like all of the the conflict that we've seen, but I think that it's like it's really heartening that like you know what we what we've talked about is just like the state you know it's a, like it's about the state enacting this stuff, you know what I mean it's like it's not about mm-hmm. it's not like individual like and I'm sure there's like instances of workers being violent and there's like a certain history of uh of union organizing in Canada kind of neglecting. neglecting chauvinism yeah yeah exactly but you know ultimately it's like it's bosses and it's fucking statesmen that are doing this and it's and as far as i've been able to as far as i've been able to learn like when workers have been involved it's been positive and it's been good and i think that you know to all the to all the naysayers all the all the chauvinists that retweet land back stuff and want to want to make some jokes or whatever then i just know that you're in my prayers brother (laughs) brothers and sisters i'm praying for you i'm smudging for you i'm 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 thinking good thoughts (laughs) because you know like we're calling you to yeah we're calling you in brother (laughs) come here (laughs) come on come here stop posting cringe stop posting cringe and start joining the workers movement dude honestly the workers movement that you want to join is the fucking is mushroom pickers if you know where to go find morel mushrooms and pine mushrooms 
hop in a car, mm-hmm. go find those things and just wait for the most deranged white and indigenous people to pull up. <laughs> so, like, as a as a former full-time harvester, I can say you will have the best and worst time of your life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. That's all to say, just like, you know, like I've said this whole time, just the, the ontological operation cuts both ways. You know, it's, it's the same way that like patriarchy is, is a negative force for like men as much as it is for women, right? Like we're, yeah. uh, we're talking intersectionality in a not cringe way. Yeah. Not cringe intersectionality. <laughs> or, That's right. Like, you know, we're all victims of a century-old ontological operation by the royal families of Castile, Leon, England, the Pope, the Dutch East India Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the colonial states of Kukuka Clanada, and what's the one for the United States? America. Kukuka. Oh, God damn. Hold on. I'm going to take this from the top. <laughs> To all to all my cringe posting chauvinist brothers and sisters, know that you're in my prayers. You know that I'm thinking good thoughts. Know that you're on my mind when I'm smudging, when I'm holding eagle feathers and other stuff like that. Just you know, come to us and and know that we're we're intersectional. You know, we're we're intersectional in our approach. You know, we're we all all of us. Jimmy, Lie Hall, the Subliminal Jihad Boys. Fergal Schlompler, all of us, <laughs> shout out, shout out all of those, all of, all of my fellow victims of this centuries old ontological operation perpetrated against us by the royal families of Castile, Lyon, England, all of those awful inbred family names, the Pope, all the Popes, the Dutch East India Company, the Hudson's Bay Company, the colonial states of Kukukka, Canada, and the United States of America, Kukukka, and the New World Order. But, you know, just like any ontological operation, just like capitalist realism, you know, it's, it's hard to see past it, but just remember when you're feeling at your lowest, when, you, when it feels like the only thing you can turn to is the koof juice, or those sus psychedelics or whatever the fuck they're trying to force feed you to if you they're trying to switch you to mushrooms off of Xanax or whatever, just Soylent and Soylent. <laughs> when that Soylent diet is really rotting a hole through your stomach lining, just clench your fists as hard as you can and shut your eyes and just remember there's power in a union. Amen. 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 <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Fuck, I should translate fucking... I should try and translate Solidarity Forever and Decree or something. That'd be so lit. <laughs> oh, that'd be sick. I was oh, I was wondering if bro, was like... I should fucking do that. <laughs> have you ever seen those, like, uh, YouTubes that are, like, uh, one hour of Japanese communist music or, like, one hour Spanish communist music? Or th- Have you ever seen those on YouTube? <laughs> uh, you might say I see them a lot eight hours a day at my desk <laughs> in my office, my cubicle. <laughs> they might be pumping like, through my headphones constantly. I wonder if there's like one hour like Native American communist music. Buddy, 
I'll have to go check. In the next, keep your eyes peeled in the next month or so because I will be very busy making this happen. <laughs> no. Oh, actually, you know what? I think the closest thing would be that Constitution song. What's the Constitution song? Oh, that gambling. It's one of the songs that's in the Google Doc, but it's this old gambling song. Like, a, Oh, yeah, I haven't listened to him yet, oh, but I will. <laughs> put that shit on. Clench your fists. Yeah, clench your fists. Oh, yeah. Put on that. Just crank that as loud as you can. <laughs> it's like, a. actually, the story behind that song is really dope. It's like um, in the 1980s, the Canadian constitution was drafted because up until then we hadn't had one, like we were just a confederation or whatever, and still fairly, mm-hmm. fairly answerable to the crown officially. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the state, yeah, yeah, the yeah. state is run by half, half cut the, the, men and fucking gin soaked pederasts. So they never bothered the to make wor- a proper constitution. The world's plug. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, so they fucking, Anyway, so they started drafting this constitution and like, so there's um, there's this gambling game called Slahal that people play. It's like, there's different versions of it all over the place, but there, there's one version and all of them, they'll like have like a, basically two teams. One team will be like hiding a pair of pieces and the other team has to guess like where the proper piece is, but they'll always, they'll always be singing songs while someone's hiding the pieces to kind of like psych other people out, but um this one group took one of their nation's gambling songs and put words to it and it's just like such a badass fucking like protest ass song but i'll send that uh i'll send that over to you because that might be some hot a hot cut to drop (laughs) that's like a hard stop for the (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah hell yeah dude awesome Yeah,
No, 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 no,